Welcome. We invite you into our circle. Spirit, can you hear me? Spirit, can you hear me? Y E S. What are you? What are you? D E M O Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, The Great Courses Plus, HelloFresh, Simply Safe, our contributors at patreon.com and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Welcome. We invite you into our circle. Last week, we took you through the history of the development of the Ouija board with our special guest and expert on such things, Mr. Brandon Hodge. It was fascinating to learn how the board evolved from a somewhat rabid interest in spiritualism and seances in the 1800s. Tonight, we step behind the Ouija board and into some of the stories surrounding it since its inception. There are more than a few crimes connected to them over the years, and, well, you folks sent a few scary stories yourselves. But first, Astonishing Legends recently acquired a rare booklet on how to use the Ouija board and develop automatic writing skills. It's titled Ouija Board and Automatic Writing, How to Do It, and was written by Hareward Carrington, Ph.D., and published in 1920 by the Psychical Publishing Company. We want to share a few excerpts from it. The sitters who operate the board usually sit opposite one another, with the board upon a low table or held upon their knees. One sitter or two or more may place their hands upon the board at the same time. One or both hands may be placed upon the pointer. Some sitters preferring one hand, others both. Some use the right hand and others the left. The mind of the person operating the board should be more or less blank or otherwise occupied though it need not be entirely negative. At first, it will be difficult for the operator to keep his mind from the board. His natural curiosity will make him want to know what it writes. But this is the worst thing possible and tends to shut off communications. The letters, as they are spelled out, should be noted down by another person and, if necessary, deciphered afterwards. The operator should not busy himself as to what the board is spelling out, Activity of mind will shut off the best manifestations. A very good test of your own powers is to sit at the board blindfold. See whether or not you can obtain consistent messages under these conditions. Many have obtained them in this manner. Mrs. Hester Travers Smith, in her book, Voices from the Void, obtaining nearly all her communications in this manner. This is a very good test and shows that you yourself are not really consciously doing the writing that's an interesting passage, is it not? And it confirms Scott's memories in part one of placing the board on one's knees. You'll note here that our author refers to what the board does as writing because, technically, the indication of these letters and messages was born from and is a form of automatic writing, as we learned last week with Mr. Hodge. Mr. Carrington's guide offers one last bit of advice on automatic writing in general. Patience is required here as elsewhere. Hold the mind in a receptive attitude. 
send out a mental call for guidance and wisdom, and do not come to the conclusion too quickly that the messages you receive are nonsense. Often a jumble of letters that, at first sight, mean nothing, may form a very significant message when rightly interpreted. Hmm, rightly interpreted. That's the catch, isn't it, folks? How should we interpret these messages? After all, we can't even be sure where they're coming from. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. There are some people in occult history who warned against using the Ouija board, who said, this is a dangerous door to the unconscious. Don't approach this thing. Occult author and lecturer, Mitch Horowitz. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the Ouija board. And we're back, and tonight we've got some stories to tell, but hold on a second. I have a robot that I've hired to take over this opening duty for me. Are you ready? Yeah. And we're back. And we're back. And we're back. And we're back. That's pretty good. Oh, geez, I think he's... And we're back. And we're back. Okay, you know what, that's enough. That's enough. Now, you know what, I'm not... You're not getting the full pay for that, okay? Uh, You're messing it up. But. No, I, I think my son is desperately missing that toy, by the way, which Paula Pell oh, gave him. Certainly. I got it. Well, <laughs> too bad he's not getting it back because uh, that's now who's going to be taking over this duty for me when I fix him. <laughs> well, we have a little bit of quick housekeeping, and I mean quick, especially compared to last week. Uh, wait, wait a second. What's the qualifier? Oh, uh, um, well, you didn't see? Quick. Some jerk ball sent us a ma- or tried to make a comment on our website, which oh. I did not approve, complaining that last week's yeah. show didn't really start until 17 minutes in. I'm like, clearly this guy's <laughs> never heard an episode of Astonishing Legends before. It's a lot of perception. Again, I don't fault people. Maybe uh, you skipped a one where we, we trimmed it down to like 14 minutes. I don't know. Well, you know, whatever it was, if, if you're that guy, which was literally the fake email address he used, this housekeeping is for you. Yes, I'm betting he's uh, he's not with us anymore. Oh, no. Well, don't not, wish not that. Not dead. I'm just oh, saying okay, he's just okay. not with the no, show yes, anymore. No, we yeah, hope you're alive and well and, yes, and course, actively yes. ignoring us. <laughs> uh, we do have some <laughs> right. special new Halloween merch in the store, which we've mentioned the past couple episodes. We just wanted to let everybody know the store orders have been bonkers. Our guys are screen printing as fast as they can. Have patience. Uh, the stuff is getting shipped out, and you will see it soon. Also, folks, we just want to say thanks again for supporting our sponsors. We really appreciate it, and so do they. Speaking of which, if you've heard of one you like on the show, but were on the go and you couldn't get back to it, there's an easy-to-find page on our website where you can track all of our sponsor offers down. It's under the shop menu right on the top of the page there. Now, some of the codes may have expired on the older offers because we can't track that stuff, but it's an easy place to find ones we recently mentioned, and also you'll see the descriptions of the uh, products and services themselves there. Yeah, and you can also find those in the show notes for each episode. Oh, and one other thing, reliable human-created transcripts with audio playback are now available starting with Alien Autopsy Part 2 and going forward. All the ones prior to that were done uh, by artificial intelligence, so we're working on repairing (laughs) those. But Mm. downstream of that, you can get to those right from the show notes page for the episode, and they will be there for every episode going forward. And we'll be posting the older ones as we get the ones that the AI did corrected. Okay, I think that's it, right? Wait a second, wait a second, hold on. What? What's up? Well, something's not right here. 
What do you mean? Well, usually around this time of year, you're you're much more freaked out. You know, spooked about something. There's just not something that's nearly scaring you to death. Wait, what are you what are you talking about? I just mean in years past around Halloween, uh, well, for example, you had the Sally House giving you the spoops or you're usually haunted by an old friend in a steakhouse men's room. All right, that's uh, <laughs> that's not the right way to put that story. Uh, and if anybody okay. wants to hear it, it's in our Archipelousa series. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so what are you going to do about it for this spooky season? I think I may have the perfect solution for you and all of us who enjoy some extra scares around Halloween or any time of the year. It's a horror podcast called Scared to Death from our good friends Dan and Lindsay Cummins, who do the Time Suck podcast. Oh, yeah. Now, we've mentioned Dan and his very popular Time Suck on the show before, and we have a lot of crossover audience, so I'm sure fans of Astonishing Legends will dig Scared to Death. I've no doubt there are over 50 hours and counting of demonic possessions, hauntings, shadow people, black-eyed children, alien abductions, and so much more. Pretty much everything we like to cover on the show, so our astonishing audience is sure to find something to give them the creeps. Just keep in mind, the stories they cover are so terrifying, they can't help but react with a little peppery language. So this show is probably best left to the adults who can handle it. Yeah, the premise of Scared to Death is that Dan Cummins, who loves horror, attempts to terrify his wife, Lindsay, with two new supposedly true tales each week. Then Lindsay tries to get back at Dan with even scarier stories. They'll also cover at least two listener-submitted encounters with the paranormal, which are often the most disturbing part of the show. Right. Well, if you need more chills in your life like Scott here, because he's not quite twitchy enough yet for my tastes, it's time you got scared to death. New episodes drop every Tuesday night, the stroke before midnight, Pacific time. You can get scared to death anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can also watch the show on YouTube. All right, folks, uh, we did the history lesson last week. Uh, This week, it's an entirely different show. It's time to talk about the stories that are connected to Ouija boards and have been for decades now since their inception. Yeah, you know, we thought it was a good idea, as we always do. You do this in paranormal investigations. You try and find out the history of what you're investigating or just getting stories from because the background is always important. So now that we know that, we have a good handle on that to see how this thing was born that's just a board with letters on it how can that be spooky how can that do anything maybe it doesn't do anything and maybe it does do something and maybe that something's a lot more than you expected or wanted you know one thing i want to start on before we get into these stories tonight we have a lot of good ones that are really interesting uh from real history and also from you guys you guys sent some really great stuff in but i did want to talk a little bit about this booklet that we referenced in the cold open Ouija board and automatic writing, how to do it. Forrest, you did a great job with this guy's name. Hereward, H-E-R-E-W-A-R-D. Like Hereward. It's probably Herward. Herward, Hereward Carrington, PhD. Sounds fancy. Yes, the Psychical Publishing Company. And it's copyright 1920. I love that. This is a very old book. I got this off eBay. I think it's real. You never know with eBay. But um, <laughs> but it looks real. It's very old paper, it's and I did, fake, I did yeah. sneeze when I opened it. Yeah. And it's short. It's only a few pages. I did find as I was uh, sourcing this and writing into the outline, and I was, I was looking online to see if there were any copies of it online, and one did come up in Google Books, but it's not from this booklet. It shows that they just poured it over a section into this booklet from a larger book by Mr. Carrington called Your Psychic Powers and How to Develop Them. How's that? Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, and that's published in New York by Dodd Mead and Company, which was actually a pretty big-time publisher. They were around all the way until 1990. 
one of my favorite authors was with them, actually, Edward Abbey, uh, who wrote oh, The yeah. Monkey Wrench Gang, which is a fantastic book. Well, I think we have to try it out now. We'll try what out? Try... Well, you got the booklet. You got to you gotta try the instructions. Well, yeah. They work, right? Well, they do talk about automatic writing in here. So I... And I, I you know, in a way, what we've been through, and eventually we're going to talk about this, folks. Um, yeah. I'm hoping in 2021 to really focus on developing our remote viewing skills. And um, I do want to talk about our process with that. But there is a portion of those steps that you take in controlled remote viewing that does feel a little bit like automatic writing to me. Yeah, yeah. And there's some similarities there. I mean, when you think about what he says in the, in the guide here, make the mind as blank as possible. After a time, you may be able to think of other things at the same time, carry on a train of conversation, read a book, etc. So <laughs> what I think is interesting about that is in controlled remote viewing, the process that Laurie Williams teaches and is derived from other masters of the skill is based on keeping your mind occupied to a certain extent so that it can't get in your conscious mind, can't get in the way of what's happening subconsciously. And this is the same kind of advice coming back in 1920. It's the same yeah. sort of thing. You actually did, you do a small burst of it, if you remember correctly, with your pen as you sit down and you clear your mind, you do a quick squiggle. Yes. And you don't think about it. You just do it. And then I didn't get this at first, but they want you to put your finger on it and, and feel it. you get a vibe from that. And I thought, is that just the marking on the page that I pressed down too hard? <laughs> is, is there a ridge there that shouldn't be? But no, you're getting a sense of that. And then with uh, little ideograms, you sketch out the impressions that come to you yeah. and adjectives, not nouns, because nouns lock you into objects. What you're trying to describe here. It's a reporting method. What you're trying to report are sensations and impressions. Right, which I think is a lot of how automatic writing works. And the other thing that he said that I thought was interesting, and I don't know if people are doing this today with Ouija and probably who has it now, Hasbro has it now. They might not have this in the instructions because they want to sell more sets. But he said that you should limit your sessions to 15 to 20 minutes. Mm. And then he goes on to say, I thought you'd like this. If you're going to keep doing it, tell the spirits you'll meet them back the next day. And mm. try to tell them you'll meet them at the same time. So you can just be like, you know, yeah, we'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock and we'll talk more about this. Yeah, it's just common courtesy. Don't you, uh, you know, what a pet peeve of mine is that you're waiting for a friend to call because you're going to go do something and they don't give you a time. So you're just kind of waiting around. It's like, well, do I start something now or are they going to call back? When are they going to show up? Yeah. So if you set a time, yeah, that's just crazy. They got to know. Yeah, they got to get on the subway, whatever, get over there. Well, this brings to mind a couple of questions for me. And it, this is another thing that came up when I was thinking about the parallels between remote viewing and the operation of a Ouija board or automatic writing is where is this information coming from? And this is the thing you need to, if you take notes on our show, which I don't think anybody does, but if you did, <laughs> write down. Where is the message coming from? Because that's going to be the theme throughout our fall season, all the way into November. We have a lot of shows lined up that are about that sort of thing. So when I think about this, and I think about the Ouija board and automatic writing, you always get this branding, for lack of a better word, that it's paranormal, it's spooky, this is creepy, we're talking to the dead. But then when you do remote viewing, there's none of that. This is just you're accessing information. You're making a connection. You might as well be an old-timey phone operator plugging a cable in, <laughs> right, and trying to understand. But if the information is coming from the same places, then the question is, are we misinterpreting it on this end? Like, it makes me wonder, is it a mistake to brand the Ouija session as ghostly? I don't know. Just mm. something to think about. You have to wonder, is it internal, existential? Is it coming from within you, within your own subconscious, it's like the idiomotor phenomenon is 
the will or is the action of it coming from inside your own subconscious? And you, you know you're not moving it, but maybe you are. But then you wonder, well, still, where is that information coming from if it is your subconscious? Because that's a powerful connection in and of itself. Well, and that's one of the things that the other researcher that we didn't talk to last week, but we mentioned a few times, Robert Murch, he says it's like, it doesn't really matter how this works. It works. We believe that it works. And there are other people that believe that it works. So again, yeah, where is it coming from? And again, coming back to the remote viewing parallel, they don't know how it works either. They don't even try to tell you how it works. It's like, that's not what we're doing. We're just trying to make it work the best way possible. Right. And there's a lesson in getting past proving that this is X, Y, or Z and just trying right. to get the communication to be as clear as it can be. I think the difference here, which is important to delineate between the two, though, with the Ouija board, you're getting information or answers or guidance and some of its uh, prescient prognostication, whatever it is from the stuff you may not know about, or, or the board seems it's going to prophesy something for you that may come to pass. It may not. But can you trust the information? That's the big question, though, with Ouija, because you don't know who you're talking to. It's like picking up hitchhikers, as we always say. You might get somebody who's fun. You might get a serial killer. So with remote viewing, though, being a reporting methodology that is trying to be as scientific as it can and as rigid with its structure and practice as it can, how you can tell you're getting good information is that you check it out later against the target. How accurate were you? What were you getting that was right? And Joseph McMonagall, uh, one of the best uh, remote viewers of all time, will tell you, I just can't do waterfalls. Anything near a waterfall, I just can't see it. I don't know why. So they know if the target has something like that, he may not be accurate with that. And everyone's like that. There's some things that just don't come through. But how you gauge it is you go back and you get a percentage of how many good hits you had. Right, which is not something you can do with the Ouija board necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it may spell out your Sometimes great you aunt's can. name. Yeah, yeah. yeah her, her nickname and like, well, that's right, but you knew that. So is that information coming from your own subconscious because you knew it or it's your conscious? Or is it something beyond that just knows information it's not supposed to? And that's why I think if you go to do sessions, you've finished listening to this show and you decide that you're crazy enough to whip out a Ouija board here in Halloween, one of the things you can do to make sure you're getting accurate information is you can try some of the stuff that we've already mentioned just tonight. You could try doing it blindfolded. You could try having a third party write something down on a piece of paper that neither one of the two people with the planchette know what it is. You could try having them hide something in another room. If you're a fan of Mothman, maybe some chapstick and just try to figure <laughs> out, just try to figure out What's going yeah. on? Or after you hear some of these stories we're going to relay to you tonight, maybe you don't want to at all. Yeah, we've got some uh, great stories here. We're going to start out with some historical ones, just a handful of those before we dig into some of the ones you guys sent in. I wanted to go back and take a look at during uh, some of my research into newspapers and articles about some of these crimes. And there's a fair amount of them. We'll have a link in the show notes to crimes associated with Ouija boards. And philosophically, I want to go ahead and say, as a discussion point for us, and I guess we can go ahead and get this out now, is that there's no shortage of the board being used to scapegoat, I think, anyone that was available to frame for a crime. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> because once it got into the belief system, people, well, the Ouija board told me to do it. No, nope, the Ouija board said it was her over there. <laughs> right. The one that is sleeping with yeah. my husband, it was her. And so it's like anybody who was even remotely had a chance of 
getting in trouble or getting snatched up as a usual suspect could be in danger of being further implicated by a Ouija board in some cases. Even though that shouldn't hold up in a court of law, it does seem like when you read some of these newspaper articles from the 20s and 30s that it was carrying weight with a lot of people anyway. And so in the, in the course of me trying to find some articles about crimes and murders and spooky things connected to these, I did find one article in the Wichita Daily Eagle from January 4th, 1920, that I thought was pretty interesting because it detailed what was going on at the time that sets the tone a little bit for tonight and for the, the history of, of the boards. Listen to this. Again, this plays back to a little bit in part one, what it was like at the time when everybody was getting into these. The headline is, Ouija craze has struck Wichita. The subheading is, mystic boards and works on psychic world are much sought in city. Ranging from the typical flapper to the most profound scientist are those persons who are quickening the interest in the psychic, which has been sweeping Wichita for several months. The information is revealed through the sale of Ouija boards and books on spiritualism. Sales have increased immeasurably. Ouija boards are the most popular playthings in the market, says one buyer for a Wichita store. During the Christmas rush, they sold along with other gifts. The demand, it is said, has increased several hundred percent within the last few months. Everyone from the flapper to the near scientist and the scientist represent the buyers. Some come with a sheepish grin and some with sober, fearful countenance, while the majority appear half playful about their purchases. Bookstores report exceptionally heavy calls for psychic literature. Wants are initiated by the Ouija boards in most cases, says one dealer. Some even delve into deep works in their psychic research. The loss of relatives in the war has moved many to seek to get messages from them, another buyer says. The poem, In Flanders Fields, was taken from the Ouija board by one group of enthusiastic players, it is claimed. The poem came by Ouija board route before it had been published, broadcast in magazines and newspapers, they say. At numerous home entertainments, the Ouija board has been prominent of late. It forms a regular part of many an evening's program where both men and women move their fingers over the mysterious board and, quote, get information, which many declare turns out to be true. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know. Have you ever heard of In Flanders Fields? Well, the name's vaguely familiar, but in that article we mentioned last time where we took a lot of good information uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine here, uh, The Strange and Mysterious History of the Ouija Board, there's this section here on literary works that were inspired or communicated through the Ouija Board, apparently. One of them being in 1916, Mrs. Pearl Coran made headlines when she began writing poems and stories that she claimed were dictated via Ouija board. Now, reading from the article here, by the spirit of a 17th century Englishwoman called Patience Worth. So then that next year, uh, the author's friend, Emily Grant Hutchings, claimed that her book, Jap Heron, was also communicated via Ouija board. By the late Samuel Clemens. Oh, Mark yes. Mark Twain. Remember that? Yes. That one had the lawsuit because <laughs> right. they were like, uh, no, and uh, they sued, and all of those <laughs> no. copies were destroyed, by the oh, way. Oh, dear. Talk about a rare yeah. book. I bet if you could find one of those original ones that was ghostwritten, literally, by Mark Twain yeah. through a Ouija board. Interesting. Or not. Uh, those were all destroyed after a lawsuit. <laughs> It's fascinating. And again, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, that's what triggered uh, when you mentioned poetry here, James Merrill claimed in 1982 his epic Ouija-inspired and dictated poem, The Changing Light at Sandover. That won the National Book Critics Circle Award. This one has an interesting quote, though, because uh, it says here uh, in parentheses, though, Merrill, for his part, 
implied that the Ouija board was more of a magnifier for his own poetic thoughts rather than a hotline to the spirits, it says here. In 1979, after he wrote Mirabelle, Books of Number, another Ouija creation, he told the New York Review of Books, quote, if the spirits aren't external, how astonishing the mediums become. Do you know what I'm saying? Or yeah. do you know what he was saying is that if this is not coming from some kind of external spirit, how amazing is that our subconscious minds are creating great works of literature? I think in these cases, those stories probably are better. They have more of a footing than this one because this is just a thing in a newspaper article that says, hey, this poem, a bunch of people got this poem before it was published because right. the poem was actually written by a Canadian military man named John McRae. He was a physician. And he was in World War I, and he wrote it after a friend of hers died in battle. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it's very, very famous in Canada, I guess. Yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll read it very quickly. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago. We lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Okay, now that is more familiar. Yeah, I, yeah. I, do, I do remember that. Well, it's, yeah. it's considered one of the most quoted poems relating to World War I. Well, so yeah. it makes sense, though, if it's that popular, and then all these stories are going around, Ouija boards are crazy, and it's like, oh, no, I heard sure. this group of people wrote it down before it came out. You know? <laughs> right. But what you're referencing in the Smithsonian article, that's actually right. published work that's not yes. prescient. It's just better than expected by the author, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you could take inspiration from it. So yeah, as we just said, uh, by the way, just speaking of quoting, that article that we really like is written by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie. So just want to yes. give her credit. It's either the board is facilitating some amount of creative talent and energy coming from within you, or maybe you're channeling it. And so one sounds more, of course, woo-woo than the other. It's like, well, it's just buried deep inside me. And, and somehow use of this board and the uh, idio motor phenomenon is bringing it out, which is inspiring me. So either way, like uh, as the author said, it's pretty interesting. And uh, how much more amazing are we if that's the case? Hi, I'm Daniel Long, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Well, and escalating this a little bit further, I did want to read one other brief article from the New York Tribune. This is from April 10th, 1921. The headline is, Ghost Proof Jury is Chosen for a $10,000 Ouija Board Suit. 1921. Check this mm -hmm. out. Chicago, April 9th. With a guaranteed ghost-proof jury selected, Joliet's celebrated 10,000 Ouija board damage suit is ready to go to trial on Monday. The suit is brought by Mr. and Mrs. Frank Waters. They charge that the defendant, Mrs. Albert Yost of Lockport, allowed the Ouija board to persuade her that they had robbed her home of 10 pounds of raisins, a peck of potatoes, and a carrot. Mrs. Yost admits she made the statement but expresses credence in the Ouija. Attorneys for the plaintiffs summarily challenged a half dozen jurors who confessed to a belief in ghosts. One was Frank Smith, a farmer. 
Sure, he said. I believe in ghosts. I remember seeing one when I was a kid. I don't know anything about Ouija boards, but there might be something in them. He was excused. Another said that although he had never seen a ghost, he was not certain there might not be a few of them wandering around. I've seen my dog look as if he was seeing things I couldn't see, he explained. Besides that, I've got a niece that sees ghosts regularly. Mm -hmm. A third talesman expressed a positive belief in the credibility of Ouija boards. I've got one myself, he explained. It told me once not to buy a calf, and I went ahead and did it anyhow. Then the calf died. (laughs) (laughs) The defense expressed willingness to accept all believers in the supernatural, but the plaintiffs objected. The result was that the jury, as finally composed, consists of 12 good men and true who are sure that no such thing as a spirit world exists and that Ouija boards are merely something with which to while away time. So, that's the kind of thing that's making the news there. Speaking of going to trial, it does remind me a little bit of uh, Annalise Michelle. Oh, yeah. And uh, that story, like, where do you draw the line of uh, how much of this are we going to accept and how much is, yeah, too woo for us? Well, we're now moving into the more escalated stories connected to the Ouija board. I'm taking this one from the Sacramento Star, June 14th, 1923. It was a page one story. See what you think of this one, Forrest. Accused wife blames Ouija for quarrel. Lays first quarrel with mate to the mystic board. This is uh, Oroville, California, north of Sacramento. Defense attorneys for Mrs. May Murdoch, accused of the Ouija board murder of her husband, Robert Murdoch, at their home in Biggs, March 17th, last, today introduced into Superior Court a diary the aged woman had kept since 1916 in an effort to show that the defendant was of unsound mind when she shot her husband. Mrs. Murdoch testified on the stand yesterday that her Ouija board had told her that her husband planned her death and she shot him on suspicion that he would her if she allowed him to live. They had been married for 26 years. Mrs. Murdoch also testified that her husband had attempted to hypnotize her on several occasions and tried to exert a telepathic influence over her. She fought this influence, she testified, by keeping a watch on him by means of her Ouija board. The reading Mm. of the diary was expected to consume two days. Quote, The Ouija board told me my husband was untrue to me, that he was wary of me because I was old, and intended to kill me with an axe. End quote. Mrs. May Murdoch charged with the murder of her husband, Robert Murdoch of Biggs testified on the witness stand in Superior Court. Murdoch died of gunshot wounds in the Oroville Hospital several days after the shooting. Mrs. Murdoch testified that she was a devotee of the Ouija board and that several times she doubted its prophecies, but she finally believed them. Other witnesses testified that Murdoch told them before he died that his wife had fired the shots. Mrs. Murdoch is a middle-aged woman with heavily graying hair. She held a Bible in her lap with her hands clasped over it during her testimony, which recounted the weird conversations she had with the mystic board. Ouija was the cause of our first quarrel in 26 years of married life, Mrs. Murdoch sobbed. That's the last line of that story. They were definitely not woke back then, by the way. This is not a very woke story. How how so? uh, Well, just, just, you know, it's all about how she's old and gray and she had to kill him. uh, You know, of course. Yes. Well, unfortunately, that still goes on, that sort of thing. It goes to show there are people out there who have much more interesting home lives than most of us. (laughs) But if like the Ouija board's telling you to kill people and that's still going on, that's happening up through the 2000s there. Like I said, we'll have links to some of those stories if you really want to read some of those. This one is one of the more famous ones that's actually connected to it. This article here comes from uh, the Daily Mail in Hagerstown, Maryland, December 22nd, 
1933. And this is the story of Maddie Turley, which if you look up any links about Ouija boards, this one always comes up and, and crime. St. John's, Arizona, December 22nd. Girl confesses shooting father because of Ouija board seance. Punishment for a 15-year-old girl who admitted shooting her father at the instigation of her mother's Ouija board was considered by authorities here today. After the girl, Maddie Turley, pleaded guilty to a charge of attempted murder, County Attorney Jay Smith Gibbons recommended she be sent to the state industrial school for six years. The mother, Mrs. Dorothea Irene Turley, held as an accomplice, denied the Ouija board seance in which the shooting was alleged ordered so that she would be free to marry, quote, a young cowboy, unquote. Uh Her petition for freedom on a writ of habeas corpus was set for hearing Tuesday. The victim of the shooting, E.J. Turley, chief gunner's mate of the Naval Reserve, was in the Navy hospital at San Diego, California, to which he was taken by airplane. Physicians said the wound in his hip still was under examination. Ms. Turley testified at her mother's hearing in justice court that she followed her father to the corral of their ranch home and took careful aim at his back with a shotgun. She said she lost her nerve, but after thinking, quote, how much it would mean, end quote, to her mother, raised the gun again and fired. Mother told me that the Ouija board could not be denied, she testified, and that I would not even be arrested for doing it, end quote. Surprise! Okay, Forrest, this is where this really takes an interesting turn. Prehistoric cliff writings and a story of buried treasure also figured in Ms. Turley's account. The girl said her mother, who claims to have been named Venus of America in a newspaper beauty contest 15 years ago, noticed the cliff writings and consulted the Ouija board, which told her about the buried treasure. Both Miss Turley and her 14-year-old brother David asserted that while their father blasted away rock in search of the treasure at Miss Turley's insistence, their mother was in the company of the young cowboy. Uh-huh. It was after this, Miss Turley said, that the Ouija board was consulted again and it wrote out I was to kill my father. <laughs> End quote. Ooh. That's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about the scapegoating and, well, here's a convenient tool. Yeah. It's this just seems like, well, they're not going to arrest her. We'll say she did it. I'll tell her that the Ouija board told me to tell her to do it. And then we'll get away with this and I can have a change of circumstances and everyone will be okay. As the kids say, and I realize the kids don't say this. I do realize <laughs> that, uh, there's a lot to unpack. Actually, some of them do say that. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. And that if the Ouija board really didn't spell it out, like, is that your defense? That's what you're going to go with? Really? Like, yeah. You think you can get people on board with that one? And if you did, maybe you take a step back. It told me to murder. Ah, I've never been wrong before. I mean, I should probably just do it. Yeah. And the mother <laughs> here is playing on this poor, impressionable daughter who's well, like, that's I yeah, help that's mom. The, yeah, there's a lot of horribleness going on here. Yeah. Uh, and the Ouija board certainly is not helping. Here's one other story that I found, and we talked about this last week for us, but I did want to touch on this, was here's an article that talks about William Fold, F-U-L-D, mm. falling off of the building. And uh, that the Ouija board supposedly told him to build. I'm not going to read this whole article because there's not a lot of details in it, but it is interesting. And we talked with Brandon about how Fold is credited as the inventor of the Ouija board, but he never himself actually said that. And we now know that that's not true, but his name is still on a lot of the boards, I believe. So a lot of the vintage boards people find. Uh, We saw a picture from a a listener who sent in a picture of of her vintage board, she got, I think, uh, maybe at a Minnesota flea market, but it doesn't even say Ouija on it. I believe it may have William Fold's name on it, but not the brand name Ouija. Right. This is from the Kansas City Star, uh, March 11th, 1927. 
The headline is, Might Have Foretold Fate, Inventor of Ouija Board Met Death in Accidental Fall. That the inventor of the Ouija board died recently in his 54th year in Baltimore is news that comes as a surprise. To treacherous memory, the lettered tablet and its agile indicator seem older than his years. The man to whom credit is assigned for originating this puzzling toy was William Fold. An ironical twist is given to his fate by the fact that his death resulted from an accident which many adepts in the use of his ingenious device firmly believe it might have warned him of. There are not a few students of spiritism who hold that the messages the little felt-shod table spells out come from beings on another plane who possess knowledge of the future which is denied to the imperfect creatures of this earth. Mr. Fold was supervising erection of a flagstaff on the roof of his factory, and a strut he was clinging to gave way. He toppled backward and fell three stories to the ground. That's the article that details how he died. Again, not the inventor, but credited as being the inventor. And Scott, which newspaper did that come from? That's the Kansas City Star, but it also says right at the top of it, it was taken from the New York Sun. Oh, okay. Because a New York paper, and I thought it was the New York Times, which we mentioned in part one, is the one that, with his obituary, said that William Fold was the inventor of the board, which is incorrect. And that, it all stuck. Everybody believed it. So we all know how that happens. Yeah. It's kind of like the B in D.B. Cooper. All right. There are a lot of crime stories and crimes that are associated with the Ouija board. And there are a lot of folks who say, oh, well, this one's the quintessential one or that one is. And as we said, we have links to those and you can go read them. This was one that really stood out to me. And this is the one about Gary Mark Gilmore or Gary Gilmore. Those of you that are of a certain age or true crime fans may recognize his name. He is one of the more notorious criminals in history. And in fact, his case was such a big deal. There was a send up of it on Saturday Night Live. There was a Christmas song that they sang on stage because they were against capital punishment, talking about Mm. his execution. Yeah, the Executioner's song, right? Yeah. Uh, And well, the the Executioner's song, the movie, also was related to him, which was based on a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Gilmore, and then we can see how his uh, life was connected to the Ouija board in in a roundabout way. Gary Mark Gilmore was an American criminal, this from Wikipedia, who gained international attention for demanding the implementation of his death sentence for two murders he had admitted to committing in Utah. After the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a new series of death penalty statutes in the 1976 decision, Gregg versus Georgia, he became the first person in almost 10 years to be executed in the United States. Here's an excerpt explaining exactly what he was accused of. On the evening of July 19, 1976, Gilmore robbed and murdered Max Jensen, a gas station employee in Orem, Utah. The next evening, he robbed and murdered Benny Bushnell a motel manager in Provo. Although both men had complied with his demands, he murdered them. The young men were each ordered to lie down and then were shot in the head. Both were students at Brigham Young University. Both left widows and infants. While disposing of the twenty-two caliber pistol used in both killings, Gilmore accidentally shot himself in his right hand, leaving a trail of blood to the service garage where he had left his truck to be repaired prior to murdering Bushnell. Garage mechanic Michael Simpson witnessed Gilmore hiding the gun in the bushes. Seeing the blood on Gilmore's crudely bandaged right hand when he approached to pay for the repairs to his truck and hearing a police scanner of the shooting at the nearby motel, Simpson wrote down Gilmore's registration plate number and called the police. Gilmore's cousin Brenda actually turned him in to police shortly after he phoned her asking for bandages and painkillers for the injury to his hand. 
All right, so this guy, obviously a little bit of a bad egg, and there's a lot that goes into that, but there is an interesting Ouija connection, and that's uh, why he comes up when you look up crimes and criminals connected to Ouija boards. It turns out that Gary's brother, Michael, wrote a book called Shot in the Heart about his brother. Uh, This book's won several awards, and in this book, Michael details how uh, they had a devout Mormon family, and in fact, Gary and Michael's mother, who had several kids, and she was also one of a larger family, recalled being warned by a bishop as a child of the dangers of Ouija boards as uh, possible methods of inviting Satan into your home. Nevertheless, their mother, her name was Bessie, uh, when she was 16, she bought a Ouija board at a five-and-dime store, and she convinced one of her sisters to try it out. This is long before she was married and long before Gary was born. When they began using it, they made contact with an entity, and the very first message it told them was that it was dead. They didn't get much further because one of their younger sisters was in the room, and she screamed. She got scared. And then that's when their mom found out what they were doing, and she came in, and she lit into them, telling Bessie's sister Alta to take the Ouija board out of the house and burn it in the incinerator. But Alta didn't do that. She actually hid it in their barn, and a few days later, after everything had blown over, they got it out again, at which point they reconnected with this entity, whatever it was, and it went on to tell them it was dead because it had killed a man and it, quote, wanted back. At that moment, out in the barn, their dad came in and he was incensed. He took the board away from them and smashed it to pieces with an axe. So I want to read an excerpt from uh, Michael Gilmore's book, Shot in the Heart. This is on page 38. Um, this is what their dad said. Are you conjuring spirits in the middle of the night? Are you my children, or have you already given yourselves to the devil? He picked up an axe, took the Ouija board from their hands, and hacked it to pieces. If I find you worshiping the devil again, he said, I'll give you to the Danites. I did have to look up uh, what the Danites were. Uh, Mm -hmm. This was a a group of Mormon vigilantes that uh, Mm. supposedly didn't exist past 1838. This was well after that, but it's probably, I think in this instance, used to scare the kids straight. Cut to later in life, Bessie now uh, goes on to live her life further. She gets older. She eventually marries Frank Gilmore. That'll be Gary Gilmore's dad and Michael Gilmore's dad. Frank's mom, which would be Gary Gilmore's grandmother, was a medium named Faye. And uh, she was a very busy medium. Like, that's what she did. And one night, uh, she had been asked to do a very special seance. And this is the section I want to read that's going to get us around to why we're telling this story. This is from pages 103 and 104 of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group's Kindle edition of Shot in the Heart by Michael Gilmore. Finally, there came a night when Faye told Bessie that she would be conducting a seance that was a bit unusual. She had a special dispensation, Faye explained, to contact a spirit that had died under the shameful suspicion of murder. And she told Bessie to take the boys to a movie that night and stay out late. This is from Michael's point of view. When my mother and brothers came back in the late hours of the night, she found Faye in her wheelchair in the kitchen, looking paler and shakier than Bessie had seen her look before. It seemed to my mother that there was an air of unease about the place that night, that there was, in fact, a smell of something old and wretched in the air. After putting the boys to bed, Bessie slowly got Faye into bed. As she drew the night covers over the old woman, she said she saw Faye wearing an expression that she had never shown before, a look of utter fear and helplessness. A few hours later, 
Bessie Gilmore left that house dragging her three sons behind her, and she never saw Faye alive again. It wasn't until almost two generations later, long after Gary's death, that my mother would tell me the full story of what she claimed had taken place on that ghost night. Sometime in the hours after midnight, she heard movement in the house. At first it alarmed her. Then she remembered that my father had called a day or two earlier to say that he would probably be coming to retrieve her soon, and it was his custom to come in late, drunk, and stumbling. She fell back asleep, hoping he would leave her alone when he came to bed. A little while later, she awakened again, this time to an intimate touch. At first, she told me later, it was a gentler touch than usual for my father, and still half asleep in the darkness, she pressed up against him. And then this hand that had pleased and hurt her in so many ways over the years, touched her in a manner that no man had ever touched her before, and she was outraged. She pushed away and opened her eyes, and what she saw, she said, what had tried to caress her so shockingly, was not my father. It did not even look truly human, though it bore a distinctly hungry leer on its face. Bessie moved fast, faster than she had ever moved before. She pulled free and ran into the hallway, calling for Frank and Gary. It was there that she met her second shock. Moving slowly toward my mother, her white hair flowing down her shoulders like a wild horse's mane, was Faye, looking entranced and muttering in a low, frightened voice. Faye, who had been an invalid for all the years my mother had known her, had somehow made her way to the upstairs hallway and was walking toward Bessie. At first, my mother was more furious than shocked. Had Faye been faking her debility all this time? But then Faye's words froze my mother's anger. Bessie, she said, you must leave here. You must leave this house now. It knows, Bessie. It knows who you are. Then my mother told me Frankie was in the hallway, grabbing my mother's hand, pulling her toward his bedroom. He was crying and pointing toward the door saying, Mommy, Gary, Mommy, Gary. Again, she moved fast. When she entered the bedroom, she saw the same figure that had been in the bed with her, bending over Gary, staring into my brother's eyes. Bessie was terrified, but she reached over and swept Gary from the bed, and then she grabbed my other brothers and left the house. My mother and the boys spent the night in a bus depot. She was worried about Faye, but there was no way to get her to leave the house. Besides, she figured, Faye knew how to handle spirits. So... If you look from Gary Gilmore's mother's point of view, she felt that at some point this being had gotten connected to him. And she also apparently felt, and this is detailed in Michael's book, I guess, that this was the same entity that somehow first accessed her life when she was younger and playing around with her sisters and that Ouija board and that it all came together. So for Bessie, their mom, she thought there was a relationship between the crimes that Gary Gilmore committed and the Ouija board. So to get this straight, Grandma Faye, she doesn't give the reason, but she's going to have the seance and that's what triggered all this activity. Yes. And she was having the seance on the behalf of someone else probably because that's what she did. She was known for doing that. Right, right. Yes. But Bessie believes that this was some dark entity that she had first contacted with use of the Ouija board when she was 16 and it had stuck around and now it manifested perhaps amplified by her mother Faye's seance. Yes. 
So Gary Gilmore was executed on January 17th, 1977 at 8.07 a.m. by firing squad at the Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. This again coming from Wikipedia. In the morning at the time of execution, Gilmore was transported to an abandoned cannery behind the prison, which served as its death house. He was strapped to a chair with a wall of sandbags placed behind him to trap the bullets. Five gunmen, local police officers, stood concealed behind a curtain with five small holes through which they aimed their rifles. When asked for any last words, Gilmore simply replied, let's do it. The Reverend Thomas Mearsman, the Roman Catholic prison chaplain, administered the last rites to Gilmore. After the prison physician cloaked him in a black hood, Gilmore uttered his last words to Mearsman. Dominus Vobiscum. Latin translation, the Lord be with you. Mearsman replied, et cum spiritu tuo, and with your spirit. In Utah, Firing squads consisted of five volunteer law enforcement officers from the county in which the conviction of the offender took place. The five executioners were equipped with 30-30 caliber rifles and off-the-shelf Winchester 150-grain silver-tip ammunition. The condemned was restrained and hooded, and the shots were fired at a distance of 20 feet, aiming at the chest. Prison officials stated that the firing squad comprised four men with live rounds and one with a blank, so that the shooters could not be certain as to who fired the fatal shots. However, upon inspecting the clothes worn by his brother Gary at his execution, Michael Gilmore noted five holes in the shirt. According to his memoir, Shot in the Heart, the state of Utah apparently had taken no chances on the morning that it put my brother to death. Here's a little addendum that I found out today. The founder of ad agency Widening Kennedy, who I did numerous jobs for back in my former career, Dan Wyden, credits the inspiration for his Just Do It Nike slogan to Gary Gilmore's last words. Well, that's nice. And Scott, make a note of this. If I ever come up for capital punishment in that way, and this is not a note for people to try this on their own, but that's how I want to go out, firing yeah. squad. Yeah. Uh, I believe I, the state of Idaho still allows that. There's only one or two, maybe three states. I'm not sure that's off the top of my head. Not usually done anymore, but yeah, I'll take that. It just seems... Uh, more dramatic, I guess. And uh, I'll probably utter what uh, Brian uh, Brown uttered in the movie Breaker Morant. You'll just have to go look that up for yourselves. I already know, but I'm not going to say I don't want to spoil it for anybody. All right. Well, now we're at the part where we tell you the spooky and amusing and maybe one heartwarming story about Ouija board use. And before we do that, though, I really want to give a sincere thank you to all the listeners that sent in stories. Scott, how many did we get? Oh, yeah, we got more than 50. I think we had 53 last time I checked. They, and they're still coming in. <laughs> and if you still want to send one in, go ahead. Uh, we do skim through all the emails we do get, most every one. A few slip through the cracks, as we always say. But we did skim all these, and it was really hard to trim these down to the ones that we're going to read tonight. And so what we did was we shirked that responsibility and had Tess do it. So what <laughs> Tess did was receive all the emails, grouped them together, and basically put them in a chart on a spreadsheet so we could have easy access to them. And, and then we had to go from there and decide which ones, none of them are better than the others. It's just ones that probably had either uh, more story elements to it or something different about it that illustrated the point that Scott was making earlier about the communication that comes through and the consequences of that. 
And so please don't feel bad if your story didn't make it. We just had far too many. And and so this is a good sampling, we thought, of just the variations of stories and also the patterns that seem to happen. I guarantee you there are people out there that thought for a minute we were going to read 53 stories because that is how we roll sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to send that in. I I know some of these weren't easy to tell either. They're, They're pretty personal in some degrees. And uh, some really still resonate with the people. It still gives them goosebumps and, and frights. And uh, But they were kind enough to share them. And so we feel like our listenership here is a big group of friends. And we're all among friends. And we just kind of hear people out and we accept it. And uh, that's what these stories are. So take what you will from them. But... But if you do give them a little credence, it's pretty fascinating to see what elements seem to keep coming up about these stories and and how they're different and the different types of reactions that they get. And one thing I want to ask you, Scott, this is something, it's a thematic that I thought of transitioning from part one and the history and all that, you know, beginning in um, 1848, I think with the Fox sisters, uh, certainly mid 19th century and many more decades before that of people practicing a type of spirit communication in one way or another with its height reached in the mid to late 19th century and carrying over, is that, as we said in part one, it was pretty commonplace and seen as a wholesome family activity. It was okay to mess with a Ouija board on a Saturday night and go to church the next day, as the Smithsonian article uh, pointed out. That that was the attitude. It's like, no, this fits within Christianity. There's nothing taboo about this, really. It's perfectly fine. People go somewhere else, and here, this might be a way to talk to them. But with all those people using the Ouija board and the craze that resulted, as Scott mentioned a little while ago, 1967, two million boards were sold and outsold Monopoly at some point. With all that spirit communication taking place, I wonder how many negative stories were out there that we just don't know about. I mean, not alluding to the ones that you read in the paper where, yes, some crime was loosely connected to an alibi, perhaps, or there was something with the Gilmore story that's pretty gripping. I mean, that's a frightening encounter right there. If true, as it was relayed, that's pretty chilling. And that's also comes back to something that I've brought up before, too, though. It's a chicken and the egg thing. I mean, if you get past, okay, did any of that really happen? You know, if you believe any of this at all, if you get past that and you say, okay, I'm going to accept that this might have happened, then the next question is, whatever this thing was that Bessie, whatever she saw that night, was it influencing him or was it a result of something that was already in him? You know, did it come from him? Did it emanate from him? So those are questions, philosophical questions that you can't even get to until you get past whether or not you believe that part of the story is real. Right. Which is why I like to say whether or not I believe a component of a story like that is real, I like to go past it and say, okay, I'm going to accept that it is real. The next question is, where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. Is it there because of him or as a result of him? Yeah, that was the end thought that Scott came up with at the end of part one that I expressed is the Ouija board more of a window or a mirror? Are you seeing something from beyond or is it reflecting what's inside you? Is it a little bit of both? A two-way mirror where it's a mirror on one side, but uh, something can see you from the other side, as you see in those crime dramas where they're interviewing people, uh, interrogating them. So you do wonder what's going on. But my point here is that let's say there just weren't that many horrible stories associated with Ouija use. You know there's got to be some back in the day. And again, it wasn't really um, mentioned because of the attitude, the cultural attitude and the cultural norm that the Ouija board use was. 
so maybe you weren't hearing those, but you know there has to be probably a few that weren't a good session, let's say, and freaked people out, and they had some resulting activity that they connected with the board use. But where did it start to take a dark turn just culturally? We talked about that in part one. And and uh, was it in the 70s, 1971, with The Exorcist and people saw bad things happening? And that's also a reflection with the board, with the zeitgeist, that now that we're all thinking that this is something bad, that's why more bad things are happening associated with it? Who knows? You know, you can't get the answers to this. And, and certainly don't ask the board because I, my stance is that I'll take whatever it says with a grain of salt. I'll find it interesting, take notes and record patterns with it. But yeah, if it tells me to go commit a crime, I'm I'm not going to run out and do it <laughs> because you don't know where that information is coming from and whether or not to trust it. Did it unleash something with maybe a, a million or two million people around the world using this board at the turn of the 20th century? And now the use has declined, but it's such a significant part, an iconic part of our culture that it's going to be with us forever, I think. And tonight, we're about to hear some stories that make you think twice about that, about what's really going on. And can you use it safely? Can it just be a fun family game? Or is every session with the board a spin on the wheel of fortune of something fun and interesting or something evil? Well, folks, if you haven't done it already, this is the time to dim the lights, maybe light a few candles, sit back and enjoy the spooky season with Astonishing Legends as we start to get into your very own stories that you sent to us. Good night. And we're done, right? Let's... Oh, no, we have to read the stories. I'm sorry. Yes. I was... No I jokes. Come on. We're being serious now. now. Oh, yes. Serious. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Okay. So the first story we're going to read is one that I like because... It doesn't actually involve use of a Ouija board. It's what happened when you don't use it, and maybe the board wanted you to. So this first story comes from M. Euphania, and uh, starts off with, a, Hey, Tess, Scott, and Forrest, this is a story about a time I didn't use a Ouija board. When I was a kid, my little sister and I used to spend weekends at our aunt's 100-plus-year-old townhouse. One afternoon, when I was around 11, my sister and I found an old Ouija board box hidden away on a shelf in the basement. Curious and excited, we brought it up to one of our aunts, who got frightened and asked us to put it away. So, naturally, we went to her, now wife, with it, and she lamented that the planchette had been missing for years, and, and it was true. The old and dusty box was in the board, but we had nothing to read it with. I'm almost glad we didn't realize there were other ways to use the board without the planchette back then. My sister and I, defeated, placed the Ouija board box back on the shelf in the basement. As we turned to climb the steps, however, we hear a crash. The Ouija board box was open on the floor, and laying next to it was the missing planchette. It's almost 20 years later, and I haven't touched another Ouija board. Stay safe, M. So do you think it could have been hidden in the box somewhere? Well, there's a couple of things we don't know from the telling, and I'm, I'm kind of glad uh, we don't really drill down on this because not every good story needs to be dragged out in the sunlight to be disinfected. Yeah. You know, it's not a vampire living under a trailer like in Salem's Lot. You're going to drag out because that's your duty. Uh, what I like is that maybe the ant was just telling a white lie that like, oh, I don't know, it's been lost for years, so you kids don't play with it. It doesn't work. doesn't work. Just put it back. Yeah. We don't know if the kids looked inside and they didn't see a planchette and they asked the ant about it. But to your point, even if it was in there 
and this story is true or just accurate the way it's been told, it flew off the shelf. Yeah. So that's a sign right there. It's like, yeah. play with me, kids. <laughs> Come on. Here's the planchette you've been waiting for. And uh, yeah, that'd be enough to be like, okay, I don't need to be playing with that. Well, this next story came from one of our listeners who is also a podcaster in Sweden. His name is Linus Borgström. And this story takes the Ouija story just a a little notch higher, like each one of these does as we get going. (laughs) (laughs) I like this one because it's got a good classic story twist, shall we say. Indeed. That something weird perhaps did indeed happen. So here we go. Hello, listener and fellow podcaster from Sweden here. I would like to share a story that was related to me by a friend regarding their experiences with Ouija boards. This story happened when my grandmother was pregnant with her first child, my uncle. She was a young mother and was meeting her friends at a party. When the hour grew late, they decided to have some fun and play with a homemade Ouija-style device. They lit candles and started their rounds. After a while, they noticed they were getting more coherent answers. So they decided to ask an important and dangerous question. Who are you? The board spelled out the letters D-J-A-V-U-L. Javel. Which in Swedish means D-E-V-I-L. Devil. My grandmother and her friends started to freak out, but decided to go on. They asked another question. Where are you? The answer came swiftly. Closet. As they were sitting in a room with a big closet, most of them freaked out, but my grandmother was over it, saying, Come on, it's just a game. She walked over to the closet and opened the door, and as she did, a leather belt snapped in a strange and unexplainable manner, striking the left side of her pregnant belly. While the small, elongated wound was only superficial, it was enough for them to throw away the board. A number of months later, My grandmother was at the hospital giving birth to my uncle. As she held him in her arms, looking at him for the first time, she noticed a strange birthmark on the left side of his belly. It was the exact shape of the scar she bore from that night, when the devil hid in the closet. Thanks for a great podcast, Linus. Okay, again, this one, I like the story, a lot of detail. I do wonder, is the grandmother pulling their chains? (laughs) Did bit. she manifest the birthmark on her child's belly the, in the same place as what you're saying? be the story that goes with the birthmark, the family story that goes with the birthmark, the lore. Mm, I don't know if she'd be the one telling it. From the story, though, she's pretty skeptical. She's the one that said, come on, stop all this. It's just a game. That's true. It's yeah. a good story. I like it. Well, the other thing I like about it in connection is that uh, you, you've heard of people who've claimed to have had past lives or they somehow realize that. And they knew how they died, or that's been able to be researched. And uh, the freaky thing is that they will go back and find the person uh, in the previous life that they thought they were and how they died. And say, like, the person died of an injury on their belly, or they died of a gunshot wound. And sometimes people will have a strange birthmark in that exact same spot. Yeah, that's true. That's That's freaky to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, why don't you tell us about this next story? I like it because it involves LAPD detectives and investigating and, and psychics. This story is from a former coworker of mine. When she was a kid, she had a next-door neighbor who was some fairly well-known psychic. Apparently, the LAPD would contact him for help on cases with some amount of regularity. 
Well, one day, she was playing with a Ouija board with her sibling in their family home. They tried to do the usual, giggling as they nervously asked if there were spirits around them. They ended up not really getting any interesting answers, so they soon forgot about the game and put it away. Not too long after that, some strange things began to occur. They had an old analog radio in the room where they had played with the Ouija board, and it began to turn on randomly at all times of the day and night, always to static. She also said that various trinkets in the room would be moved around or outright thrown to the ground. It wasn't anything to be seriously concerned about, maybe just some simple misremembering or the radio malfunctioning. After a while, she began to notice a sort of oppressive energy in the air, which was especially prevalent in that room. As time went on, the tension in the air grew. Then one day, her neighbor, the psychic, paid the family a visit. He took one step into the house and instantly turned towards the room where they had played with the Ouija board. He turned toward my coworker and her sister and asked them what had happened in that room. The siblings didn't really know how to answer that, but eventually they mentioned that they had been playing with the Ouija board. The psychic told them that they had invited something in and they needed to get rid of it. The kids brought out the board and he tore it in half and threw it away into a bin outside. After that day, the radio never malfunctioned again and memory of where dolls and toys were placed in the room seemed to improve. The oppressive feeling, of course, also dissipated. Big fan of the show, Soaring. So my favorite detail in that story, Forrest, is that the radio turned to static, especially when you think about the things that we've learned in the past year about the Estes method and... Well, you mean analog EVPs? Like yeah. maybe it's uh, try to use that or using a medium. It's the telephone. It's ringing the telephone. It wants you to answer. I'm picturing here... Uh, Peter James, the psychic we often mention from the 80s. With the mustache. Uh, yes, with the white hair, the dark black mustache, and uh, him coming in and setting things straight. And uh, again, taking the story at face value, it's interesting that he walked in and immediately knew something was off. Yeah. And finally, what I like about the story is that you don't have to do an elaborate ritual. You rip it in half, you throw it in the trash. Yeah. End of story. It worked. <laughs> but not for everyone, as we'll see. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with what you're dealing with. Hey, this is Megan, and when I'm not working, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Like, literally, when I'm not at work, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends every day. Now back to the show. Well, this next story comes to us from a longtime listener, somebody who's very active with us on Twitter and social media, and I, I think is in the group, and uh, yeah, we love seeing her name. It's Michelle Kadarma's booth. And I love this story also because, again, it's somebody who senses the board's presence without maybe actually even seeing it. Yeah, that's the freakiest part about this one. My mom, Yolanda, has always told us not to play with Ouija boards. She believes they are dangerous and could invite things in that we have no control over. She put a healthy fear into us, and therefore we never played with one or had one in the house until... My sister, Angelique, and I were in high school, and she had a friend, Janet, and Janet had been invited over for an overnight. Janet thought it might be fun to play with a Ouija board, and she brought one with her in her bag. When she asked if we wanted to have a session, we told her absolutely not. Do not even take it out of the bag, and do not tell Mom she had it. We went on with our night, and uh, Mom didn't know a thing. Well, we fell asleep after midnight, but at about 2.30 in the morning, 
my mom came downstairs, marched into our room, reached directly into Janet's bag, and pulled out the Ouija board. She then turned around, went back up the stairs to the front door, and threw the board out of the house. She told Janet to call her mother to come get her immediately. Further, she made Janet sit out on the porch to wait for her mom. She only lived a few blocks away. She was not allowed to touch the board until she left. Then she picked up the board and took it with her. Mom was angry. She was anxious. But also she was sad. And she was genuinely shaken. We didn't understand. There's no way she knew that thing was in the house. She was so angry that she banned Janet from ever coming over again. The next morning, after we all got some sleep, we asked Mom what had happened. How did she know? This is what she said. She'd gone to sleep with my dad and had a vivid dream. She saw her mother, her father, and her grandmother, who had all passed, at the foot of her bed. They moved so close that Mom could feel their weight on her feet. Her mother sat on the bed. When her mother then reached out her hand for my mom to come with the group, my mom began to feel as if it wasn't them at all. She felt like they were imposters. So she told her mother, no, I'm not ready to go with you. It's not my time. She ordered them to leave. And they did. Then my mom somehow immediately knew what was up. She got the Ouija board and threw it out of the house. My sister and I had never even seen the board. While we thought my mom was superstitious and had some spooky clairvoyant tendencies before the Janet incident, we never doubted her again after that. Michelle Quartermaz Booth. So that's a good one. I like that one a lot. Yeah, there's a point there, though, we've talked about before. And that was a story that really stuck with me from the documentary The Nightmare, where the woman feels like her past mother got into bed with her. And she doesn't turn around. She just senses, like, yeah, everything about it, every sensation, the smell, just the presence. It's something that is supposed to be her mom, that is trying to appear to be her mom. And she, without even turning around, knows it's not her mom. It's trying to comfort her. But what does it want, really? Well, yeah, and you know what else it reminds me of is the Arkapalooza story about the doppelganger that was supposed to be her sister. And it had looked like her sister was the right height and was running through the house like her sister, but it had the wrong haircut. (laughs) <laughs> the bubby voice. Yes, the bubby voice. But with this story here, it's interesting, though, that mom is in a dream, and she knows this is wrong. And I'm not going with you because you may not come back. And you wonder if she had gone with them in the dream, what would have happened? So I'm glad that turned out all okay. Also funny that mom was having none of it. <laughs> you and your board go outside. Bye, now, Janet. And you're never coming back. Yeah. yeah. So that was a little harsh, but uh, but I get the mom's uh, feeling about that. Like, it just shook her to the core. Like, that's it. We're We're done with this. The thing about this story that I'm interested in, and maybe we can get this detail from Michelle is how was the information imparted to her mom that the board was in Janet's bag? That's not mentioned. The dream makes no mention of that, or the vivid dream that she had, there's no mention of that. We don't know. Yeah, so again, we could follow up with these people, and and, uh, and maybe the mom knows, and she just didn't relay that to the kids, or maybe she doesn't remember anymore and, and doesn't know. But taking the story as true, it doesn't matter. Mom marched downstairs, knew where the board was. That's the amazing part. 
not so much how it came to her, but uh, maybe in the dream and maybe just a sense that there, there was something in that bag that was not good. Exactly. All right, Forrest, so tell us a little bit about this next one that we're going to hear. Well, this one is also interesting because there may or may not be a direct correlation and connection to using the board, but the results, whether or not it is, are, are pretty awful. Yeah, this has been a tough go for her. This one comes from listener Ashley, and she, she actually sent two emails, I think. Well, Forrest, you can explain it. I guess she typed out the first one while experiencing a high fever, not COVID-related, just a high fever. She was a little bit delirious. So she was saying, sorry about that, uh, the first one. L- let me rewrite this. Because as she says here in the second email, I didn't have the courage to tell my story in a healthy state of mind. So I did so when I was mentally compromised. And as a result, I sent you guys word vomit. I'm glad you found the courage to resend it. She says, yes, I'm sorry. I I thought I would send you the same email, but this time probably more comprehensive. So what happened to me in 2012? My mother just gotten remarried. I wanted to pick on my stepfather in a good-natured way, and I was already pretty interested in occult things, so I decided to buy a Ouija board. He was pretty good-humored about it, but ultimately told us to trash it or he would burn it. My sister and I decided instead to sneak it into our shared room. We decided to play around with it just for fun. Neither of us took it seriously. I kept using my fake demon voice and lying about summoning false spirits and... My sister kept trying to push the planchette around. I giggle when I lie, and my sister was pushing the planchette so hard her knuckles were white. We were both acting really stupid and childish. Eventually, my sister said she was bored and pretty unceremoniously stood up. We didn't say goodbye, which I think you're supposed to do. Point being, when she stood up, the second she took her fingers off the planchette, my body instantly tensed extremely tight. I still am not sure how to describe it. My hands tensed up very tight, but I couldn't close them. They tensed so hard, I remember they hurt for days afterward. My back, arms, legs, jaw, and everywhere clenched as well. My jaw clenched so hard after I felt what felt like sand in my mouth, and later, when I spat into the sink, I discovered tiny bits of teeth. I right away had extremely bad heartburn. I felt my stomach acid rise into my throat, and my heart took off so fast I could feel it in my throat and temples. I remember there being a loud, whooshing sound in my ears. Every time my heart beat, there was just that whooshing noise, over and over. I couldn't move anything for what felt like several minutes. I couldn't even blink. My sister very quickly went from telling me to knock it off to screaming at me to stop faking. She kept repeating that I was scaring her. Eventually, the weight left all at once. My sister was losing it, so I said something about pranking her. I think I just wanted to calm her down. I went to stand up, and an extremely sharp pain shot from my right mid-lower leg up into my hip. I was very shaky, and I feel like I was in shock. I don't remember going to the bathroom, but I left my room, and I ended up there. I had a massive panic attack. I had never had one before, so I think it scared me even more. I've had a lot of medical problems since. Before, I was very healthy playing sports for years in school. I also never had issues with anxiety. After, I had recurring episodes of the above symptoms. I almost always have leg pain. Anxiety is common and has led to a lack of proper sleep. I also have panic attacks regularly. 
I get heartburn almost every night, and when I do sleep, I have to sleep propped up on pillows. I have really bad reactions to food and often become sick. I also sometimes get really bad clinching in my hands and legs. I also frequently get sick getting the flu every year since, which I have never had before. Months after the attack, I went to the doctor and described my symptoms and the onset incident, not mentioning the board. Tests were run, and outside of some high blood pressure, also new, there is nothing wrong with me. My doctor says sometimes people can have seizures that are atypical, and they can be hard to diagnose after the fact. He thinks maybe the first seizure caused me to develop PTSD, causing the anxiety that causes the heartburn and stomach acid. I've also been to four specialists about my leg pain, and nothing is ever found wrong. I figured there is every chance it was just a seizure. I, I just think the timing is really strange. I mean, it was the second my sister's fingers left the planchette. Secretly, I sometimes wonder if something tried to enter into me and when I couldn't settle, it just ripped through my body. I don't know why I think this. It's just a thought that has stuck with me. I don't really buy into the paranormal even now. To me, it's just fun stories. Still, after everything... I have to pause and wonder sometimes. I really can't shake the thought that something tried to get in. Anyway, sorry about the previous email. I didn't even remember what I had wrote until I reread it. And thank you guys for being a great comfort and something to listen to on my bad days when I can't get out of bed. Love, Ash. That is a pretty intense and personal story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us and our listeners. That takes a lot of courage to share these stories and put yourself out there like that. And we hope that you uh, are on the road to figuring out what's going on there because that's uh, it's disconcerting. Maybe it's all just a coincidence. Maybe something else is happening, but it is disconcerting. Could be a coincidence. And uh, if it's just strictly prosaic medical reasons, it's pretty strange on its own with just some really weird timing. And, uh, and of course, uh, it did remind me of the sludge entity. So this next story, Scott and I had uh, more than a few that involved the planchette moving on its own, which in part one, remember I said, uh, maybe your subconscious uh, motor movements are moving it and you don't realize it. But what if the planchette moves on its own? How do you explain that? Yeah, there's a few good ones there, including people that were locking it in rooms by itself and coming back and it was moved. So there's another story about the planchette flipping uh, itself over again and, and back again and uh, performing tricks really for the people using it. But this one involves the planchette flinging. I see Scott has put here as a descriptor, planchette flinging. <laughs> and this one comes from Kimberly Bouchou or Boshu. She did not provide a phonetic spelling, but that's fine. Sorry for mangling your name either way. Well, she says, hey, AL team. She saw the call for Ouija stories, and this one takes place way back in 1992 or 93, and uh, it starts off like this. When my best friend and I were in junior high, her uncle surprised us one weekend with a secondhand Ouija board purchased at a swap meet. While it was nothing extraordinary, a 1970s edition of the classic William Fold design with a battered box, the board and planchette seemed to be in good shape, with little signs of use, and the gift was a welcome distraction for two teen girls mildly obsessed with the occult in an age before the internet. On our first excursion with the board, we set it up on our knees and hesitantly placed our fingertips on the planchette. Unwilling to dive directly into spirit communication, we instead tried to see if we could use the board as a tool to communicate telepathically by each focusing on objects in the room and having the other guess. 
this worked brilliantly, so we bravely decided to ask the board a few questions. To our astonishment, our queries were answered promptly and clearly by an entity who went by the name Monica. We had several more positive encounters and really were feeling confident in our abilities when things took a bit of a turn. We had both observed by then that different entities had different rhythms, different patterns, when it came to how the planchette moved across the board. Most were slow, or hesitant, some had garbled spelling, or moved aimlessly, but this entity took charge of the planchette and started moving it in wide figure eights, lashing out at the letters and numbers to spell out abbreviated sentences very similar to today's text messages before returning to the figure eight pattern. There was a forcefulness and urgency in the movements that we hadn't encountered before, and our fingers kept slipping off the edges of the planchette as it took frenzied and unpredictable turns around the board. At first, we were excited, but as the conversation progressed, it became apparent that this entity was frustrated and angry about something. We kept asking for a name, but the question was dodged repeatedly. Finally, we were given a moniker for the entity. You, yes, me, no, with the you and the me being spelled out and punctuated with a yes and no at the top of the board. This pattern overtook the figure eight pattern, like a kind of mantra, becoming faster and more forceful as the conversation progressed. We asked more pointed questions and received blunt, angry answers that were noticeably anti-Christian and anti-religious and that hinted at the entity being stuck somewhere. When I asked if it was something like purgatory, the entity answered yes, but would not elaborate. The conversation ended with an abrupt and forceful goodbye with enough force behind it that the planchette drifted right off the board. Shaken but undeterred, we chalked that experience up to a band connection and kept using the board whenever we were together, which happened to be most weekends. Our sessions continued to be overwhelmingly positive, and we were getting better at reading the messages, but nearly every time we used the board, at some point during the session, we would get a connection that felt wrong. The names were always different, but the energy always felt off. Almost malicious. Typically, the conversation would start out cordial, but would turn somewhat sinister. Sometimes the entity would say something that was a known lie or would contradict itself, and my best friend and I would exchange a concerned glance. I would demand the name of the entity, and the planchette would stop, then swing over to the letter U and up to the word yes and we knew we were dealing with the same angry entity as before. The planchette would then pick up speed, hammering out the phrase over and over again, you, yes, me, no, until we, or the entity, usually in a fit of rage, ended the session by pulling the planchette to goodbye. Sometimes, we could get a halfway decent conversation out before things got ugly, and over the course of months, we learned that this entity was somehow attached to the board. We also learned that it could see us. It knew what we looked like and what we were wearing. It could see objects in the room, even things in the closets and drawers. It liked to tease and taunt my best friend, who identified as a Christian at that time, 
and wore a small silver crucifix around her neck, usually under her shirt. The entity became fixated on it and seemed to be more agitated whenever it was visible. It would spell out tirades against God without any prompting whatsoever, attacking my friend as a believer. And it was a little frightening, even for me as a non-religious person, because it was easy to feel the frustration, the sense of betrayal that the entity felt towards Christian symbols and doctrine. The planchette movements got faster and more forceful as the entity got angrier. It seemed to get stronger every time we interacted with it. Eventually, it became violent towards her, flinging the planchette off the board at her and refusing to answer any of her questions. Understandably, my friend became very defensive and, and a little scared of our sessions as time went on. Frequently, our sessions ended with me cursing at the entity over some insult or threat aimed at her or both of us and telling it never to come back. But it always did. We tried to separate the entity from the board, but our efforts were met with explosive anger and mocking insults, so we eventually gave up that tack. Our Ouija sessions became less and less frequent during the years that followed, and there was always a bit of apprehension when the subject would come up. And we would usually look for something else to occupy ourselves, not wanting to confront the ever-angry entity who always seemed to know how to get under our skin. We took the board to parties and used it with other friends, but never seemed to get the great results we had when it was just the two of us, and we were always afraid that you, yes, me, no, would show up and scare everyone. So we stopped bringing it out with us, and the board went into a closet for a time. Eventually, after high school, the board came to live with me. I've used the board since, as well as other boards, and can honestly say that there's something about it that is a little different. It works beautifully, better than other boards I've used, but there's a heaviness to it that has nothing to do with the weight of the cardboard or plastic. A palpable, low-level energy that feels a little bit like anxiety. It makes me wonder why someone was trying to unload it at a swap meet in the first place. I also wonder about the entity who seems forever tethered to it. Will it ever find peace? What will happen to it when we are gone? We've had the board for nearly 30 years now, and it's been at least 15 years since we last used it. But I have no doubt that if we started a session now, the second our fingers touched the planchette, you, yes, me, no, would be there, and still wouldn't have anything nice to say. I mean, the creepiest thing about that is the name it has. What does this name mean? <laughs> it means, uh, yeah, that goes for you, not for me. But what does that mean? It's like your statement in the cold open. Is it saying that uh, I don't have to follow the same rules or my reality is not the same as yours? Yeah. So whatever you're asking, however mundane and prosaic, uh, I, you know, doesn't fit with me. I don't have to do that. So you, yes. Me, no. But uh, it's creepy. <laughs> Either way, whatever meaning, uh, it doesn't want to say its name because then you have a little power over it. But the story does point out, a note I made earlier, is that, uh, yeah, they were placing the board on their knees. So that is one of the standard practices from the manual, right? Yes. Uh, that you had. Something about making a physical connection with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, this next one, believe it or not, has a D.B. Cooper tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> of course there had to be a connection, because everything's connected. So, of course, D.B. Cooper's connected in some way. This one comes to us from Chris Lehman. Greetings, fathers of the freaky. I have a Ouija story that happened to me in my later teens. I haven't included names for anonymity. 
I was with a group of friends, which is where all great stories begin. The host pulled out a Ouija board that his older sister had unsuccessfully used with her friends a few times. I say unsuccessfully because when we asked for it, she gave it up easily and said, it's just a dumb game anyway. That stuff is fake. She was annoyed. So we turned off all the lights in the living room and knelt around the table. We did light a few candles, of course, so that we had some lighting, and also so that we could justify our terror at any point when the flames were naturally dancing. Of course, with the first question we asked, five boys being boys, someone decided to spell out the word penis. I I don't know who actually did it, but I don't think it was a teenage spirit being funny. After that, we got serious and started with a couple yes-no questions. Each person asked one yes or no question, and I'm not kidding when I say I legitimately asked if D.B. Cooper survived the jump. It actually really creeped me out that you guys just did a series on D.B., and then you're jumping into Ouija. Anyway, the board said yes. Mm. By the way, D.B. did survive. Side note, I loved the last episode, and it was Kenneth. Uh, (laughs) Then we got into the dirt. One of the skeptical kids asked if we could summon a demon, and the planchette said yes. The kid next to me asked if we could send it back if we summoned it, and the planchette said no. The host jumped in immediately and asked if the spirit running the planchette was a relative of any of us, and the planchette said no. I felt a wave of cool air whoosh by me, and I know the kid sitting to my left felt it too, because his whole body convulsed quickly with a shiver. The host then asked who the spirit was, and the planchette said, secret. This made no sense to us at the time, but we now know why. The host again more firmly insisted that we would send the spirit back to where it came from and in the game. It didn't tell us who it was. Slowly, and I mean slowly, it moved. D-E-M-O. And suddenly, the candles all went out at the same time. Cool air swooshed around all of us, and no one else said they heard it, but I swear I heard high-pitched laughing. It felt as if a spirit was running around our circle, laughing. We all got up and ran away to his older sister's bedroom, and we all jumped into bed with her. She was dismissive and said we were making it all up, and I don't blame her. She walked us downstairs, and all the candles were lit, and it was like we never left. The host walked up and picked up the board, placing it back into the box we removed it from about 35 minutes ago. We later learned that's a faux pas. From here, we can skip forward about 10 months. The host of the party was riding his dirt bike and collided with the kid who originally asked if we could summon a demon. The host was airlifted and the kid who asked about summoning a demon was pronounced dead on the scene. The host was in a medically induced coma for a little while, but he recovered. He had a long list of injuries and just about every major organ suffered some damage. He made a full recovery, but it took almost a year to be medically cleared to work or play sports. We met up as a group of four, the original ones to play Ouija, and he admitted to us that our friend on the other bike was not him. The host swears on his life that a demon-like creature was on the motorcycle that collided with him. Around the same time that the host was in the hospital, the kid who sat to my left tore his ACL running with his dog, resulting in him losing a full ride to play lacrosse at a Division I college. He would have had a promising career playing professional lacrosse, I guarantee it. I live in constant paranoia because nothing happened to me yet, but that demon lets me know it's still around. I see it sometimes. I feel it some nights. It's just waiting. It's terrifying. My wife and I went to a psychic once, and that guy picked up on the negative presence before we even sat down with him. He actually refused to shake my hand, 
when we initially greeted him. Lastly, my wife has been a devout Catholic her entire life, and before we got married, during our meeting with the priest, we told him about the demon, and he said a prayer over me that instantly made me feel better. He does this every Saturday after Mass, and Saturday nights are the only time I sleep peaceful anymore. Well, that's about it, really. Ouija boards ruin lives, kids. Anyway, I love the show, and I have a suggestion. Icelandic Norse mythology. Fairies, Yule, lads, etc. There's some fascinating stuff there. Signed, the real Dan Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Well, there was an additional email after that from Chris, and he said, uh, sorry for another email, but I realized I forgot one of our five. I blame it on the lack of sleep. He works long hours as a farmer, and it's harvest season, so he's uh, really putting in like 16-hour days. But what he says here is, the fifth kid, about two years after the night of the Ouija, lost his arm in a farming accident. That's probably the kindest way to put it. I haven't seen much of him since. Well, that's a, another horrible result, if uh, or a series of horrible coincidences, if not connected to board use. Well, and you know, by the way, one of the things that creeps me out about this story is how he feels like it's just hovering over him and he can't shake it. Yeah. There are ways to deal with that. If you believe in that sort of thing, people have reached out to us it's called spirit remediation, and there are mediums that uh, specialize in that. It is a very specialized practice, and some mediums, I believe, are better at it than others. It's like any other skill. So, uh, and if you don't believe in that kind of stuff, then you're fine. You, you don't have to worry about it, right? But if you feel like this is a service that might help you, or you're just interested in checking it out, drop us a line, and I can give you one or two references for people that do deal with this, or you can try and find them on your own. But Yes, you're not hopeless, uh, and you don't have to suffer through this. But you know what? What creeps me out about this story is the host kid looking over and seeing something that he knew was not his friend riding the other motorbike. Yeah. And crashing into it. What is that experience? What did he see? Yeah. Probably never will be fully to uh, effectively describe that. But man, that must be an image that is burned into your mind. Yeah. This is Sebastian Silversand. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, this next story comes to us from a longtime listener. In fact, probably most of the people sending us stories have been longtime listeners. And thank you so much for your listenership, whether it's a long time or a short time, or you're just getting to know us and and you wanted to send us a story. We really do appreciate uh, everyone out there in the audience no matter how long you've been listening. But this next story comes from Tana Fanbro, and she's very active in the Facebook group, I believe. I've certainly seen her name a lot, and she's uh, active on Twitter as well. She sends the subject line, Ouija, with an exclamation point. And the story follows as, Dear Scott and Forrest, I have tons of Ouija stories to share. And while they may not be creepy to me, that could be creepy to you guys. You see, my sister and I played with a Ouija board almost every weekend when we lived together 15 or 16 years ago. Every weekend. And when people try to explain it as, quote, a little involuntary movements that your body makes, end quote, it makes me furious. Because for us, it worked. We only used it between us due to the fact that we didn't trust anyone else to not move the planchette. This wasn't slow and voluntary movements. 
The planchette would start moving in circles and then figure eights across the board until we would ask it a question. And it was constantly moving. We would communicate with an entity named G. He once told us that we would not be able to pronounce his name. And he would call my sister the moon and I was the sun, referring to our astrological houses our signs rest in. Not really sure why he did this. Anyway, one night he told my sister to watch out for the motorcycle, and told me to watch out for Jason. The whole conversation was odd because he never warned us of anything before. We thought maybe he was warning us of a friend we work with named Jason. He rode a motorcycle and we were afraid he was going to get into an accident. Turns out, it was us. We were the ones who were going to have the accidents. About six months later, my sister was on her way home from work on a dark two-lane road. Seeing that the car in the oncoming lane was a ways down, she turned left and was hit by a man on a motorcycle. He had been riding too far to the right, and his headlight blended in with the car behind him. She never saw him. He died on impact. My accident happened two years later, on the same stretch of highway, My sister and I both worked at the same hospital. She was second shift and I was third. I was on my way to work one evening and was hit head-on by a drunk driver. My right ankle was completely crushed, but I was otherwise okay. Later, I found out that his name was Jason. G's warning never dawned on us until after both of our accidents. In hindsight, we should have asked him more precise questions but I don't know if that would have made any difference, you know? I'll be honest, I think that line in Mothman Prophecies about the window washers may be how it works on the other side. They can only see so far. Thank you guys for the show. I've been listening since Shadow People episode, and you guys never disappoint. Well, thank you, Tata, for that. Yeah, it's a great story you've been sitting on there for a while. That story did not disappoint either, no. No, Um, and I hope that uh, you and your sister are both fully recovered and have no ongoing ill effects from that those experiences that's quite a story with some foretelling and the other thing i want to point out is the description of the movement of the planchette when it's kind of making circles or or figure eight patterns apparently with mediums and people in the know about ouija that motion of the planchette making the circles or the figure eight motions uh that is what is believed to be by a lot of people to be the spirits trying to open a portal and that's what that motion is, that it's this uh, physical uh, manifestation of uh, maybe something swirling, like you're trying to drill through from the other side. Well, that's how Dr. Strange does it. <laughs> With both hands. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that is pretty, those are effect. very colorful mandalas, yeah. So yes. you start to see certain patterns and things repeat. And, uh, you know, the person debunking said, well, these are common tropes that people read and they just repeat when they do their Ouija story. Or are they patterns that actually occur with most Ouija users? All right, our next listener actually wanted to remain anonymous, so we're going to leave their name out of it. But this is a pretty cool story. And on top of that, it had a little something that reminded me of Sam the Sandown Clown in it, (laughs) which, Mm. uh, which you'll, I think, maybe figure out when we read it. Hey, guys. Sorry, I'm, I'm a month behind on the request, but I thought I would share my experience anyway. I usually don't like to share this story because even to this day, it freaks me out. But I love the podcast, so I wanted to do it anyway. Ten years ago, 
I was a freshman in college and shared a townhome with two other people. One night we had a party with around eight people and someone brought over a Ouija board. Now I've tried Ouija boards before, but nothing ever happened and I thought it was all bull So I agreed to play that night because it was humorous to me that people actually thought this stuff was real. It started out as a funny game. People were asking the board dumb questions and everyone would laugh. It was my turn to ask the Ouija board a question, so I wanted to ask it a question that I knew no one else in the room would know. I call whatever was communicating to me it, because to this day, I don't know what it actually was. I asked it what my great aunt's name was, knowing that no one there could answer that question. This would prove it was all fake and made up. However, once the planchette started to move toward the first letter of the name, I started to get uneasy, but I thought it was just a lucky guess. I truly freaked out when it actually spelled my great aunt's name, Lorraine, L-A-R-A-I-N-E, which in my experience isn't a common name. I asked if I could leave the board, but it told me no. I asked, why can't I leave? To which it responded, because I am still angry at you. I was becoming more uneasy by the second. I really wanted to get away from the board at this point. I asked it why it was angry with me. It responded, because you wronged me in the past. I've been following you around for years. The last sentence was a bit frightening since I had just moved three hours away from my hometown. The thought that the spirit could follow me anywhere I went was very unsettling to me. I asked, who are you? To which the board said, you know. And at this point, I started to think it was all fake again, and somehow someone in the room just got really lucky guessing my great aunt's name, because the other stuff just felt like someone was trying to play games with me. I told the spirit that I was sorry for upsetting it, and I apologized. I asked again if I could leave the board, and this time, it said yes. I left the board still a bit freaked out, but I thought the whole Ouija board game was all made up. After the game ended, my roommate put it away in a cabinet in the kitchen, and we forgot all about it. A week after we played, though, weird things started happening around the house. We would all be downstairs and hear footsteps upstairs. We figured it was the neighbors next door and thought nothing more of it. The following week, we would come home to doors being opened that we knew we'd shut before heading out to class. Dishes would be in different places than where we'd put them, and at this point, we started getting a little bit scared, but we thought, eh, we're just being paranoid. The turning point, however, happened almost a month after we had played. I woke up around 3 a.m. to the sound of running water. I got up and I followed the sound. I walked into my bathroom to find that the lights were turned on and my sink and bathtub were running and the bathtub was close to overflowing. Needless to say, I was freaked out. I double-checked with my roommates to make sure they weren't playing tricks on me and they swore they hadn't touched my bathroom and both seemed more freaked out than me. That was when I put it all together. All the weird stuff started happening after we played the game. So my roommates and I took the Ouija board and threw it away in a garbage dumpster that was in the apartment complex. Once we did that, all the weird stuff stopped. All right, Scott, a few things this story has reminded me of. Uh, First, it's become one of my most favorite paranormal phrases. You know. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. It took me right back to Sam. That's the one, you know. You <laughs> That's know. what you were talking about yeah. before we started. Yeah, it's like, you know what I'm talking about. If you are willing to allow yourself these thoughts, these scary thoughts about 
the possibilities of this being real and not BS. What if this was real? Well, what do you think? You already know. But will you allow yourself that possibility and those answers? So that was interesting. Another interesting paranormal point here, 3 a.m., a significant time, as we all know now that something happens. Is that following the rules of the paranormal? And water, something having to do with the manipulation or adjacentness of water, the bathtub, faucets turning on. That's another common thing you see with people describing paranormal activity faucets turning on, as well as manipulation of electricity. Yeah. And doors, of course, cabinets are always left open, and it's got all the classic signs here. My question is, in those water situations, I mean, you always see it in the movies, but in the things yeah. where the sink turns on and the tub turns on, do you think it turns on real slow and squeaky-like, or do you think it's more like, <laughs> it just comes on real fast? I think it depends on the, uh, okay. Or does it even happen? Woo. I mean, does it even happen in our reality? Is it just on? Oh, that's a good question. You know, does it just become on? I know exactly what you're saying. You're talking about then matrixy ideas where suddenly the reality is that it's not like water's magically flowing past the valve. It's just that now the valve is open. That's right. And in some way, is our reality, the fabric of our reality, suddenly the faucet's on. It's just open. Kind of like, uh, remember when Mouse, uh, he opens the curtains and there's a brick wall there? Yes. It's not like bricks were slowly put in place That's with a right. little bit of They're mortar. They're just there. They're just there suddenly. Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> funny you should say that because I just yesterday read an article. And the only reason I didn't tweet it or put it on our social media is because I'm kind of saving this one up. I'm hoping this is a 2021 uh-huh. topic for us. And again, not fully vetted. But it was right. an article that said that there was uh, some recent conclusions made. I don't know if it was a study or a scientist or a paper or something, but that the yeah. odds of us being in a simulation were as high as 50%. Ooh, it's going up. Yeah. I want to do a simulation show. Uh, so Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Uh, it's a deep dive with a lot of sources, so it's a heavy lift, as uh, Scott and I say. I think we're still working in the the rules of physics to a degree, not necessarily the forces behind that. Although, you know, as we've talked about before, especially with uh, astrophysics and subatomic physics, is that there are forces that operate that we still have no understanding of. They just seem to happen on certain levels. But I think in this case, there's a bit of energized force that uh, turns the valve turns the knobs on the faucet or lifts, you know, raises the uh, the handle there so the water can flow. I don't think it's magically just open. On the other hand, you look at that case at Skinwalker Ranch, and in an instant, that's why I said that was an answer yes. of some sort. In an instant, the BNC connectors and the coaxial cables were ripped off the pole uh, at stanchion number four. Yeah, and this comes back to my thing, see, I'm disagreeing with you, but I think that well, it I don't, does I'm not, just Yeah, I'm not laying down the law. I'm just, well, no, you're just, <laughs> I'm saying, just saying, I don't think, so I'm going to take the other right. point, but maybe you, maybe we're not disagreeing, but right. I feel like, because we've heard a lot of stories, I feel like what you hear more, almost to a story, is about people finding the results, but never catching it in action. Yeah. 
it's like the teleportation thing when right. somebody says, oh, you know, I know there was a paranormal witness and I've heard this in other stories too, where somebody th- took a figurine and threw it out the sliding glass window from, yeah. you know, off the kitchen counter way deep into the backyard and turned around and it was sitting on the counter again. Yeah. Material transposition. Yes. It didn't get up out of the yard and float on a string like the ghost and Mr. Chicken, uh, which is a very old and funny movie, back to the counter. <laughs> it was nuts. just there. It was just no, there. No, I know. Right? No, no, I agree with you. So yeah, to clarify my position here, I would say that there are a myriad of types of entities and forces and actions, shall we say, that involve the supernatural. Because I do believe some things can happen in an instant and some things are forced. Because case in point, if you take it as accurate and genuine and authentic, you'll see people involved in a poltergeist type event. and cabinets don't simply appear open. They swing open or doors shut or things fly across the room. That is just one type of paranormal activity. So what I mean to say is that uh, I think what you were referencing is the term is called a port. In paranormal terms here, uh, it's actually in Wikipedia, in parapsychology and spiritualism, an apport is the alleged paranormal transference of an article from one place to another or an appearance of an article from an unknown source that is often associated with poltergeist activity or seances. Aports or apports reported during seances have been found to be the result of deliberate fraud. Of course, that's Wikipedia, you gotta say that. Uh, No medium or psychic has demonstrated the manifestation of an apport under scientifically controlled conditions. Of course not. Of course not. But the point here is uh, that's what was happening at the Sally House, remember, with their remote and uh, yes. items like pens? And when it made the the trip, they would look like they were singed or burned or melted a little? Yeah. That's physics in a mysterious manner happening to objects. So, yeah, to go back to what you're saying, I believe that can happen. Things can slowly open or close, and it just depends on so many factors that are mysterious and we'll never know about until we're on the other side. And even then, maybe we won't know. And you can't ask the Ouija board because you're going to get all kinds of uh, answers that may or may not be true. But yes, I'm agreeing with you. I think it's just there are so many factors involved. And I think because the subject of the supernatural is so mysterious to us and we try to categorize it and give ourselves a sense of calm or understanding and relief from all this craziness is that we try to categorize and say, okay, it only happens because of this or in this way. And therefore, we can try to establish some rules about it. As we've been doing this show, I've come to believe that there are many, many different ways things can happen and different forces and different factors. That's very vague, but that's about all I can say is that, yes, uh, some things can instantly appear or instantly happen. Some things, uh, like I said, the, the, the TV remote from Sally House to the Pikmin's new address, didn't float through the air going down the street. On the street. Say, hey, what, what is that? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a TV remote that looks uh, a little melted. Oh, it's going to the Pikmin's house, of course. Uh, there's an unbelievable element to your story. Uh, it was actually not going to the Pikmin house. It was going to the Sally house from the Pikmin's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And yeah. of course, probably it is a two-way street, though. It's you're not going to get two, busted uh, on that street. It's not a one-way a, street. Yeah. Right. I'm still I'm still going to uh, drill down and nail down the idea that there's that connection to Velisca for you to freak you out. Maybe some other Halloween, but yes, you're right. And, and probably that remote at the Sally House didn't work with that TV. So. <laughs> an extra annoyance. Oh, come on, it's the wrong one. At least make it convenient. 
So the answer to this and a lot of Ouija scenarios, and that's why I'm making a, a long-winded explanation or description of this, is that you can get answers from some mystical seer, some device, and consider it, but really you're in charge of your own destiny, I believe. But also keep an eye out. You never know. And always pay attention to things around you and the scenarios you get into because it doesn't matter where the information comes from. Take in all the information around you. That's how ancient man learned to survive and, and evolve. We took clues from our environment and wherever it came from and adjusted to that and, and became aware. And that's how we go on living. And so take in all the information, but you get to decide your future and when you can leave the cafe. So for this, anyway, that, that just reminded me of, uh, you can't leave until you apologize. And he did and seemed to be fine. The other thing is that, uh, I like the idea that whatever this was, this force was directly tied to the board and just getting rid of the board, got rid of the activity, it seems. So that phenomenon is trapped in some physical material essence, shall we say. All right, so this next one uh, comes from Eric. I'm actually not sharing his full name because we, although we did ask people to indicate whether or not they wanted to be mentioned, only a few people completed that information. So some people were guessing. <laughs> so we're just gonna we're gonna call this gentleman Eric. But uh, this story yes. is a very very good one, Forrest. I think you should read this one. I like your comment because uh, we had to tag these somehow and in, in sorting the multitude of stories we got. And so Scott's note here was burn the board. Yeah. Anyway, burn the board. So the story starts off. Hey guys, long-time listener, first-time writer. I heard you were looking for first-hand encounters with a Ouija board, and I couldn't help but share my first accounts. Back in 2001, my friends and I were about to start our senior year in high school. We had what I can only describe as a series of terrifying events due to, we believe, a Ouija board. I've changed the names of those involved since I'm not sure they would be happy with me sharing the stories. At the time, my lifelong best friend, who we will call Tom, had moved in with a mutual friend of ours, Josh. Tom was going through some rough times between his girlfriend and his family. We used to have large bonfires late into the night, talking about life and what we would do when our senior year was over. One weekend, when I arrived at Josh's house for our weekly ritual, he was giddy with excitement. He had procured a Ouija board and couldn't wait to try it out. At the time, none of us had ever used one. We wanted to be fairly scientific about it, so we initially tested the board to see if it was legit. We started with me standing in another room and writing a sequence of numbers on my hand. They would ask the board the sequence of numbers and then check with me. On the first try, the board accurately guessed the five digits I had written. This was only the beginning of what was to come. The first really terrifying event happened one night when we forgot to say goodbye. According to the rules of the board, you were always supposed to say goodbye to sever the link of whatever you were talking to and to prevent it from coming into your home. So as I stated, we were messing around with the board as per usual and got distracted when a pizza arrived at the house. We forgot to say goodbye and ended up watching a movie while eating the pizza before heading to bed. So every time I would stay over, I would sleep on the pull-out couch downstairs. Both Josh and Tom had rooms upstairs. That night, around 3 a.m., I heard a blood-curdling scream come from the loft, followed by the sound of someone falling down the stairs. I immediately bolted upright, wondering if I had just had a nightmare, or, looking back now, exploding head syndrome. 
I quickly became terrified as every light upstairs turned on and Josh, Tom, and his parents had come running to the loft to see what had happened. Now, Josh had a sister, but she was older and away at college. The only female in the house was Josh's mom, who obviously was at the top of the stairs looking just as scared as everyone else. At this point in time, after finding that everyone was okay, we all tried to go back to sleep. The rest of the night was uneventful for me. The next morning, I was the first to wake and went into the kitchen to find something to drink. Josh came down not too long after. After about an hour, Tom had still not come down, so we went up to wake him. We opened the door to his room. He was sleeping huddled under the covers, curled up in a ball. But what shocked us was the room. It was absolutely trashed. The entire room looked like it had been upturned. His dresser was even on its side, with his clothes all over. We quickly woke up Tom and asked what had happened. He told us, shortly after everyone had gone back to sleep from the events at 3 a.m., he was laying in bed, trying to fall back asleep, when he felt the presence of something in his room. He was too terrified to get up and make for the door as he heard whatever it was rummaging around between him and the exit. He stated he threw the covers over his head and waited for it to go away. Over the next hour, he estimated he heard it slowly make its way across the room and over to his bed, bumping into things and knocking things over as it went. He said it ended standing right near his head on the other side of the covers and stopped moving. Initially, he thought maybe it had gone away, but then he started to hear heavy breathing. This lasted until he eventually fell asleep. At this point, we knew this all had to be linked to the Ouija board. We thought about the night before and realized we had not ended the session by saying goodbye. We immediately pulled the board out and attempted to contact whatever had been in the house the previous night. We had many vague answers, but eventually got a name. I can't remember the exact name, but it was something fairly plain. For the purposes of the story, I will go with Mary. We told Mary to leave us and never return before saying goodbye and severing the link. We hoped this would be the end of things, but over the next few weeks, Josh became obsessed with the board. He would constantly do solo sessions, staying up late, asking whoever he could contact all sorts of questions, but always making sure to say goodbye. One night when we came over to have a bonfire, he was looking rather terrified. Come to find out, he had attempted to contact Mary again. You see, he had become obsessed with the board. He had always been into the occult somewhat and figured this was the closest he had ever come to making an otherworldly connection, but he said he had gone too far. He had asked when he was going to die. Mary stated it would be less than a year and he would die in a car accident. When pushed for a date, she said it would be a Friday in September but would not say if it would be this year or the next. At this point, being freaked out enough, we decided to burn the board in the fire that night. Josh agreed, and the deed was done. Before you ask, the board didn't scream, nothing flew out of the fire, and no one burst into flames as the board burned. After that, everything went back to normal, and Josh seemed to calm down a bit. That September, Josh had decided he would not get into a car on any Friday of that month, just in case. He even convinced his parents to let him skip school those days. 
On the last Friday of September, on the main route from the school to Josh's house, there had been a large car accident. No one had been killed, but to this day, we always wondered if that had been the accident that would have claimed Josh's life. Either way, this had a profound effect on him, and last I knew, he had found Jesus and become a fairly devout Catholic. So that's it. That's my experience with the Ouija board. To this day, I respect them. I don't know if they help us channel actual spirits, or if they may be just some kind of tool to unlock powers hidden within ourselves. Maybe like a tulpa, or poltergeist. They definitely do something, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. You can go nuts wanting answers from this thing. I guess that kind of illustrates a little bit of my earlier point there, long-wittedly, but you can be waiting for answers, but they're so vague. Is it, when am I going to die? Is it this September? Is it the next one? Was that car accident intended for me, but I paid attention? You can drive yourself a little nuts. But to your point earlier about stuff moving around, that big crash at 3 a.m., the stuff moving around the, the bedroom there, it'd be curious to see that on camera, how that happened. But obviously... According to his friend, that stuff, uh, he could feel some entity moving around the room actually moving the stuff. Yeah. And again, at that significant time of 3 a.m. Well, you wonder where Mary is really from and who Mary really is, if that was Mary. And you wonder why the KLF put 3 a.m. Eternal on their album, The White Room. <laughs> but that's another question. The KLF? Yes. The Copyright Liberation Front. Yeah, they were big oh, in the 90s. Okay. Or maybe it was the 80s. No, it was the 90s. Anyway, let's move on right. to our next story, which comes from Sonia. I love this story. This is, uh, she calls it the Ouija story, Frank Lloyd Wright edition. I'm a huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> Actually, last yeah. summer when I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, I took my son on a Frank Lloyd Wright tour of America, and we went to uh, Taliesin West, which is where, oh, yeah. uh, very close to where this story takes place, and their school has since closed, sadly. Yeah. So we were there when one of the last classes there was actually actively taking, they weren't there the day we were on campus, but you right, could see that right. there were still projects going on. This was a last minute entry uh, that we received, and I liked it because, uh, it, Scott will make fun of me for this, but it has a nice button on the end of the story. Yes. Sonia Even, or Evan, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, Sonia, but this is her story. Hi, I'm a huge fan of the show, and I've been sitting on this Ouija board story for a long time. I figured you guys might appreciate it. I'm rushing to get this to you by the deadline, so don't judge me too harshly. Back in 2000, I was a teen runaway sharing an apartment with a diverse group of outcasts in Scottsdale, Arizona. After a particularly loud party, we were suddenly evicted and having no place to go, me and a group of three guys, all in their late teens, early 20s, decided to squat in an abandoned house local high schoolers had nicknamed the Frank Lloyd Wright House. Kids often hung out here and made various mischief, and the house was rumored to be haunted. Our group included Rob, who had just gotten out of jail a few months prior, Marcus, a Mexican skinhead, the punk kind, not the racist kind, and my boyfriend, Jordan. The house was right off Shea Boulevard, the main drag in North Scottsdale, and was just visible from the road. It was unique in many ways, one of which was that it was surrounded by mature eucalyptus trees, which made it look especially odd standing in the middle of a swath of desert that had been cleared for development. It was called the Frank Lloyd Wright House because people said it was based on his designs, a fact which was not that far-fetched given that it was within one mile of his Taliesin West property and appeared to have been built long before the surrounding houses in the area. Nobody understood why it was abandoned. 
The electricity was still on in part of the house, and it was in pretty good shape. It had a very unique floor plan with a sunken living room and had built-in bench seating and a massive adobe fireplace in the middle. When we arrived at the house, it was evening and the sun was just beginning to set. Storm clouds were rolling in and it was starting to rain as we snuck in through the door, which had been left ajar by the other kids who were always coming and going. We were relieved to find that the place was empty and we found a bedroom with a locking door where we could unroll our sleeping bags and set up a little area to get comfortable. Then we started exploring the house. We noticed rain leaking in from one of the floor-to-ceiling windows in the living room, which had likely been smashed by partiers and graffiti was scrawled across the swimming pool outside. The whole place, which was always creepy and unwelcoming, felt especially creepy and unwelcoming. Then we discovered a Ouija board left open in front of the fireplace, planchette sitting at the ready. Of course, we couldn't resist. We brought the Ouija board back to our bedroom and started messing around, asking the typical questions. Is there anyone here? Are we alone? And getting nowhere. Then we thought to ask it, how will we die? The answers were all pretty silly. Clearly somebody was manipulating the planchette and we were laughing and making light of the situation until it was my turn. How will I die? I asked. And it slowly spelled H-O-R-S-E. Horse. Well, this wasn't quite as funny, given the fact that my family owned horses and I had grown up riding competitively. We all seemed to feel that something had shifted. Marcus set up tea-like candles in a circle all around us, and as he lit the final one, he solemnly said, No evil spirit or demon may enter here. We tried to pass some time just talking, smoking cigarettes, telling stories, but as soon as there was a lull in conversation, we all gravitated right back to the Ouija board. I don't remember what we asked to begin with, but the questioning went on for some time. I got the sense that I was really communicating with someone. All of a sudden, it spelled out, Rob, it's me. Who, he asked, suddenly pale. Mama. We were all silent. Then Rob asked, If this is really my mom, who is my favorite uncle? I felt like I didn't even need the planchette. All of a sudden, I could see the answer spelled out in my mind, but it went on and spelled it anyway. J-A-M-E-S. Rob met my eyes, tears immediately streaming down his cheeks. That wasn't even who I was thinking of. I was thinking of a totally different person. But when she was alive, yeah, I was really close with my Uncle James. Then he took a deep breath and asked, How did you die? I felt again like I could see the words in my head written out like a story. So I pulled my hands off the board and said, It was an accident. She fell because of her diabetes and how it affected her leg. She fell down the stairs. Now Rob was really upset, shaking, sobbing. All these years I wondered if my dad did it, if he pushed her. Hang on, said Marcus. What the f*** is that? He was staring into the mirrored closet door across from all of us. What is wrong with my face, you guys? What the f***? We looked, and the face looking back at us was not Marcus's face. It looked like a straight-up demon. At that moment, when we all saw that reflection, all the candles simultaneously extinguished. And without even looking at each other, we just stood up, grabbed what we could, and ran. The yard was lit by intermittent flashes of lightning, and rain was flowing over the gravel at our feet in a torrent the way it only does in the desert during a storm. 
and I swear to God, something washed up in front of us. It was like a thick piece of paper. It was actually touching my leg, so I reached down and picked it up to look at it. It was a piece of canvas, and Jordan saw it before me. Oh my God, dude, that's a painting of a horse. It's a freaking horse. And it was, like a crude painting of a galloping black horse. That was it. We were running. We ran all the way to the main road and just kind of wandered along in the rain, shell-shocked, trying to think of a plan. And under every street lamp, the lights would blink out the second we passed underneath, only to blink back on after we passed by. So that's it. My brother is still pissed that I abandoned his sleeping bag in that house 20 years ago. But there was no way I was going back in there again. Thanks, guys. That was fun to tell. All the names are actual names, I guess I should mention, and I found Marcus on Facebook. Been thinking about reaching out to hear his version of the story. Sonia. So, pretty fascinating story. Pretty freaking scary. (laughs) That would be an awesome movie scene. Yeah. Because it's not so crazy. There's not, you know, somebody didn't turn into a thousand bats or anything. But you saw something very strange in a mirror. Yeah. So a couple of interesting aspects of the story. One, Sonia herself seemed to be attached or part of the communication process of the board is maybe part of the portal where she saw it in her head, the, the name being spelled out, J-A-M-E-S, James, and also getting the story about the mother falling down the stairs because of the diabetes. There's a connection there. Another interesting aspect was the visual in the mirror, which you hear about often. You may not see that directly looking at somebody, but the mirror is another filter or something that takes away or augments our natural vision to reveal something that uh, we shouldn't be seeing. And it wasn't good. And then, then of course, at the end, the button, the picture of the horse washing up, uh, just to give it emphasis. And then the streetlights going out under each passing, just to emphasize it. Uh, Yeah, well, I don't know much, but I know if I were you, Sonia, I probably would avoid horses from here on out. Just a thing for me. Um, (laughs) Well, you can't ask somebody to give up something they love. You know, the painting in the rainwater obviously did not and was not going to kill you. So I don't think that was the, I don't think that's what was happening there. Well, here's the bigger point is that if it was something messing with you, of course, is always the trickster element. And always, I believe in a lot of these cases, something just playing with you. It's like the spirit running around the board, joking, you know, getting a laugh out of scaring somebody. Yeah, that's true. And even if you were just a a key jangler, jokester from the other side, a past person who liked to play pranks, you got a kick out of scaring a group of kids. Yeah. So for me personally, it's like, yeah, I'd be wary about riding horses. I'd be wary about getting into cars and accidents, but I'd be doing that anyway. And so at some point, be mindful, but also you got to live your life. You can't let, you know, something uh, that might be joking with you dictate what you're going to do in life. But be respectful of it. That's the point. So these next two stories come in, uh, they go hand in hand. We're going to read them back to back. Uh, They come from Nathan Beasley and Eric McCandless, who are the founders of the Warwick, Indiana Paranormal Society. That's W-A-R-R-I-C-K. And these Ouija stories sort of informed how they got going in terms of doing paranormal investigations. And those of you on the Facebook page may recognize their names or their group's name. I'm going to start out with Nathan's here because it's a shorter one. And then uh, we'll let Forrest read Eric's uh, follow-up story to it. As with most Ouija board stories, it started off innocently enough. My sister had received a Hasbro Ouija board game for Christmas one year when we were younger. She was probably around eight or nine and I was around 13. We tried it out a couple of times since our childhood home was haunted and never had any luck with it. 
several years later, after our parents divorced, and we had moved into a duplex in the next town over. At that point, my sister was 15 and I was 19. My co-founder, Eric, and I had started getting more into the paranormal. My sister had found the Ouija board while unpacking and started using it in our new home. Shortly after that, small stuff started happening. My closet door would randomly open and shut. Uh, Things would go missing. After a few weeks, things started getting worse. I started having horrible nightmares like I'd had as a child in our old home. Several times I would wake up in a cold sweat and see the closet door opening. One night I remember getting out of bed and running to the walk-in closet, almost in a rage to confront whatever it was causing these nightmares. There was a young girl standing there, looking down at her feet. I flipped on the light. She was gone. The next day I mentioned it to my sister. She reluctantly admitted that she had seen this girl as well. She also admitted that she'd been using the Ouija board. Eric and I took the Ouija board out that night to a dead-end road and tried to burn it. It took an entire bottle of lighter fluid for it to catch fire. Once it did, we heard a loud scream. The flames shot up and a rock flew out of the fire and hit me right between the eyes. I went home that night and blessed our home. We never had any issues in that duplex after that. Wow. Well, (laughs) there you go. You did get a scream. You did get fire and you did get something flying out of the fire. And if you remember, that didn't happen in the earlier story, but it happened in this one. All right, so that's Nathan Beasley's story there. Eric's story is coming up here. We're going to let Forrest read you this one. It's a little more intense as we're getting towards the end of the show here. Well, what I liked about this account is that it's from the viewpoint of a now seasoned paranormal investigation team, and especially uh, Eric's viewpoint here. And that's why I love the the dovetailing of these two stories, because the first one was when they were younger, when they were kids, possibly solidifying their interest in the paranormal as they were getting into it. And although with Eric's story here, the Ouija board is just one element of a bunch of stuff going on, but you'll see it from the viewpoint of somebody who's now studied these types of events and what might be going on in the bigger picture, because it's not just stuff from the other side. As I've always said, it's the connection to us and our daily lives and us as people and uh, our personalities and our beliefs that is part of this whole fabric, which makes it fascinating, but also uh, scary, but also gives it its most meaning, I think. So here is Eric's account. I'm a paranormal investigator, and the story I'm sharing is from a case my team and I were involved with off and on for five years. I'm only going to give the Sparknotes version, trying to stay focused on the larger, more relevant details. It started with a random call to a home where a woman had complained of being scratched, strange smells, figures at the foot of the bed, and being sick anytime she left the house. We came out to the house to talk with her, and she began to tell us of her family history with the house. She had an abusive father who had a history of mental illness, and had actually died in the home of cardiac arrest. Prior to his death, he had been displaying concerning behavior. He was not religious, but he had hot glued a large crucifix to the wall. He had also been caught sitting for hours in their empty dirt floor basement, staring at the wall in silence. He had a strange fixation with Barbie dolls and dressing them to resemble family members and placing them in coffins and presenting them as a gift to the person they were modeled after. 
As the client was telling her story, she produced a large box of photographs printed from disposable cameras. All of the photos were from family gatherings and appeared pretty typical except for one strange thing. All of the photos with children in them had some sort of apparition. Most often, it was a family of four, or a mother and a baby, or a father and a child, or various combinations of an old-timey family portrait. Some other photos contained what appeared to be strange inhuman entities. The first few times in the house were mostly spent talking to the client. We would return every other week when she called us back, complaining of being scratched or feeling unsafe and not wanting to be alone. The list of activities in this house had a little bit of everything. All the classic stuff you hear, and then some. Had we not seen the photos, we might have dismissed it altogether, as there was a trend in the area of people just wanting to have ghost hunters over to the house, expecting to end up on TV. This client was very chatty and was present during each visit for the first year or so. While our first few investigations did garner some minor activity, EVPs, dimming flashlights, etc., we started to think maybe the client was just calling us back because she was lonely and wanted us to come visit her. Her home life was leaving her in a pretty negative mental state, so it seemed maybe she was just looking for some company. It seemed innocent enough at the time, and we thought our goal was to help people, so we obliged. As the investigations continue, the activity picks up. Members of our team begin to feel sick upon leaving the home, we heard audible growls in the attic that could not be explained. I used to be much more religious, and I had worn a silver cross blessed at the Vatican that I'd gotten on a trip to the city. After one particularly alarming EVP session, it disappeared from my neck. We scoured the entire home and could not find it. The client had sent photographs of large scratches as well, which we realized could have been done intentionally, but at this point, we knew there was something real going on in the home. However, it had become hard to discern what was real and what was a cry for attention, as many aspects of the retelling seemed like possible add-ons to the truth. We had the local fire department come out to do environmental safety tests, such as testing for radon, carbon monoxide, and other chemical causes that could lead to some of these symptoms. Not only did the house pass all the tests, but the firemen abruptly left upon completion, as one of the men became inexplicably sick to his stomach. The case continued to go downhill. The client's older son, who shared the same mental conditions as the late father, also had been discovered to have a box of Barbie dolls under the bed, which alarmed us in regards to hearing the story of the father. Out of respect to the client, I'm intentionally omitting some of the more gruesome details, but suffice it to say, we had reason to suspect the activity could be demonic in nature. We began to feel that we were in a little over our heads. Our team was in its infancy at the time. This was 2010. Our resources and experience were limited, so we brought another team in that I worked with to help. The house itself was built on a spring, which the township was named after, and that meant underground water and limestone, things that tend to be associated with paranormal hotspots. We then theorized that maybe the house was built on a natural energy well that was keeping this activity afloat. After talking with the client, we decided to cleanse the home with the help of this other team. This team performed a cleansing using sage and reiki, and, per the client's religious views, we got in touch with one of the larger Catholic cathedrals in the area to have the home blessed. For about a month, we would check in every week, and the client reported that she felt better, 
wasn't feeling nauseous, no scratches or strange rotten egg smells. We thought the case closed. But at the end of the month, she called us to tell us it had started up again. This became a pattern where the home would continually be blessed and then cleansed, and after about a month, we would receive a call that things had started up again. Each time the activity would return, the manifestations were slightly different. We felt certain that we were not dealing with the portrait family in the photos and began to wonder how many different things resided in this home. This case was beginning to wear on us, and we started going to the house in shifts when not all of us could make it. It was affecting not only our personal lives, but our physical health as well. We were sick for two to three days after each visit to the house. Eventually, we had to stop coming out every time we were requested. We tag-teamed with the other group and tried to make sure there was always someone available to help. Eventually, it became too much for them as well. For the larger duration of this ongoing event, the client would make Facebook posts about the activity and would tag our group and, and at one point even listed us as her employer on her page. Relations with the client were becoming strained and eventually we decided to step back and let the church handle her situation. Sometime later, the leader of the other group called me and told me about a post she had made on Facebook that I would yet to see. She had called in another group that we knew by association and had cut ties with because of their conduct on investigations. She had posted photos of them drinking beer and using a Ouija board in her living room. Later, we eventually confronted her about the situation as we felt like we deserved some answers at this point. She had been keeping the board under her couch for a while now and had been inviting the spirits to return when she would get lonely. At this point, our team decided to cut our losses and drop contact with the client. The strain it put on our lives had been bearable when we all thought we were helping someone, but that was no longer the case. We felt that there was nothing more we were qualified to do to get this person the help she needed. We wished her no ill will, but we have not contacted her to this day. Us being small town ghost hunters, word gets around when things happen. In the years that followed, we were told an older child had inexplicably drowned at the house in a small swimming pool filled with only two inches of water. We did not pursue this to verify any of the details. About three years ago, I saw a Facebook post containing photos of the house on fire. It had been shared in the local news that a fire of unknown origins had destroyed the home. I no longer lived there, but when I came home for the holidays, I would always drive past the empty lot where the house used to stand, just to remind myself why I will never in my life attempt to use a Ouija board. Okay, that's a good one. That's our second to last story tonight. I'm, uh, the penultimate, yes. Very interesting. And the other thing that's great about this is these guys sent these pictures. They're gonna, I think they're going to let us share these pictures. Yeah. Eric said, I've included the original of each as well as an edit for the clarity on the figure. And I got to tell you what, it is freaky looking. Very yeah. well pronounced. He says, in the last one, I included an embossed version. These are scans of the Kodaks. We sent the original files off to Kodak to see if they'd been tampered with, and we were told they couldn't explain what was in the pictures. Yeah, the image is, is pretty clear. You can really get the sense that it's an old-timey family photo. And you wonder, like with spirit photography, about images ending up on film. And especially in this case, this is disposable camera film. And that's physical. It's chemical. Something manipulating the film to 
present that image on there. So it's pretty wild. But, you know, I wanted to say that aspect of this investigation is something that uh, Jill and Roger, our our paranormal investigation uh, friends, have told us that they have had cases before where the person asked for help but didn't really want the help. They grew attached to that spirit interaction because it was company. They were lonely or or something. It, It gave them something. And so you can't help them at some point if the person doesn't want to be helped, really. Yeah, I think a lot of times when we're looking at some of the scarier stories that we've covered over the years, one of those factors that really takes it to the next level of fear, for me anyway, when you hear the story, is the people that do get caught up in it and don't necessarily want out. That's when you know they've gone too far. No matter what the circumstances are, even if they're imagining the scenario or they've created it in their heads or it's real and there's some kind of connection, the fact that they don't want to come back from it, that is scary, no matter where the story's coming from. It's like when someone's acting out, especially a child, and they want attention, but they don't care if the attention is from negative acts or good. That's right. That's a good comparison. Well, this has been quite a journey. Whatever you think about what the Ouija board is, and we hope you can safely say you know more about them now than you ever thought possible, you have to come to terms with whether or not you believe in what it does. We've detailed how it was born from a practice rife with trickery, but at the same time, has every single use of it been a con, or are people tricking themselves? Whatever the answer, we must all decide individually what we believe. Is the Ouija board a window? A mirror? A combination of both? Or is it all just in our imaginations? We'll leave you with one last story tonight. One that goes just a bit further than a cryptic message. Into the shadowy realm of a conjuring. Which begs the question, are we all underestimating the Ouija's power? You decide. A word of warning for the kids in the audience. This last story contains a word that rhymes with witch. Not read out loud, but spelled out. We're leaving it in for context. This story comes to us from listener Fidencio Lopez Jr. It was 1991. I was 19 years old and had just joined the Navy. I was done with boot camp and my first assignment was A school at the Memphis Naval Air Station in Millington, Tennessee. I was living off base with my high school sweetheart, Liz, and we were now married. We were young and just starting out, so our apartment was sparse. We only had a fold-away table and chairs in the dining area to eat our meals and an air mattress on the floor to sleep on. After a couple of weeks of settling in, we made a trip to Walmart for some essentials and decided to head over to the board game aisle and see if we could find a game to pass the time. We stumbled upon Parker Brothers Ouija and thought, well, this'll be fun to play around with. We thought we might get some laughs and a few kicks out of it to keep us entertained during our downtime, and after all, it was pretty cheap. When we got home, we put everything we bought away and then grabbed the Ouija board and sat down in the middle of the living room floor. We quickly read the instructions and then began our first session with the game. We placed our fingers lightly on the planchette and asked it a simple question. My wife Liz asked, Hello, is anyone there? The planchette began to move. It's spelled out Y-E-S. I was pretty skeptical, and I asked her if she was moving the planchette. She said, no, I, I swear I'm not moving it. It's moving on its own. Are you serious? I asked. 
We paused for a couple of minutes and chatted about whether we should continue or stop. We just started and only asked one question, so we decided to continue. It was my turn. Do we know you? N-O. Liz then asked, Do you know me? B-I-T-C-H was spelled out. And we chuckled a bit because we both agreed it was slightly correct. The next few questions we asked were more direct and personal, and the answers that came back were spot on, which made the night even more spine-chilling. We'd had enough. We packed the game away and went to bed with the lights on. At 3 a.m., we were awoken by somebody knocking at the door. We were new to the neighborhood and hadn't made any friends yet, so we shouldn't have any drop-ins visiting us. I nervously walked over to the door, being extremely cautious and super quiet. Halfway there, the three knocks repeated, only this time much louder. Maybe our paranoia was making it seem louder, but that's how I remember it. I finally found the courage to make it to the door, and with ninja quietness, I pressed my cheek up against it to stare through the peephole. I was in total disbelief at what I saw. I'd just woken up and I thought, I'm not seeing straight, and adrenaline was coursing through me. I blinked several times to clear my eyes. It is still there. It was a shadowy figure that looked somewhat like a person standing to the side of the door close to the wall, as if it was trying not to be seen. Only, it wasn't a person. I quietly cleared my throat and took a deep breath. I was only 19 years old, so I had to pretend to have a low, deep voice. Who is it? I said. The shadow figure stood there, still as a statue. I could feel my pupils dilating, my mind and eyes concentrating in disbelief. Again, I cleared my throat and took a deep breath, and in a low, deep voice I said, What do you want? No reaction. Finally, after a few minutes, it turned around and walked quickly down the hallway to a stairwell and descended it. That happened fast, but I could clearly see the shadowy figure the entire way. I spent the whole time trying to get a glimpse of what it was, to understand what I was seeing. Was it an actual human? Maybe someone who'd had too much coming home to the wrong apartment. How could that be? What I saw was a shadow. No face, no eyes, no hair. Just a shadow person that eventually disappeared. We stayed awake sitting in the living room, repeatedly asking each other what had just happened. Trying to convince ourselves it was just some drunk person that knocked on the wrong door. When sunrise came... I grabbed the Ouija board, unlocked and opened the front door, and with my mind in a cloudy haze, slowly walked the same path the shadow figure had done the night before. Heading down the stairs, I drifted toward the trash dumpster. I stood in front of the dumpster, looked at the Ouija board game, and thought in my head, I hope I don't see you back on my doorstep later, and I tossed it in. Fortunately, that was the end of our relationship with that Ouija board that we had bought at Walmart, and to this day, that's the last time we ever interacted with one. It's been 30 years, but I will never forget that night.
that's going to wrap up our series on the Ouija board. Still have yours? Maybe it's time to get it out. Or get rid of it. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Megan. Astonishing legends, listener segues. Galaxy Bide and Pepperchuri. Scott Burgess. Compensation. Forrest Philbrook. This is Sebastian Silversand from Sweden. Here we go. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>